Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Back to the bin. Anyways, you guys got any any comic news? And well, you know what? Actually, I should say hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and with me today, for two consecutive weeks now, my good friend Scott Gardner. Two consecutive weeks? Yeah, you were here last week. Was I? Or did we not record last week? <laughs> you were here for the last episode, which was with uh, Tom Panarese and Bill. Was that last week or the week before? Because that's the last episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, Two consecutive yeah. shows, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and we are joined today by Dr. Oh, no. We're joined today by Mr. J. Speak. David Weeder, off of his <laughs> sabbatical from podcasting. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, are you just doing uh, Daredevil now? Just doing Daredevil. You keeping it to that, or are you planning on expanding again? Well, there was talk of Pad Smash coming back, but now that website is completely borked. It's what? So, it's screwed. Oh, okay. Like, screwed, screwed. There's there's no coming back, so... <laughs> bork, bork, bork. Borky bork. All right, so we going to talk some comics today, or what? I know. I'm wondering how many how many listeners are going. Wait, how did this become the Universal? Well, you know uh, what? I, podcast what now? I think I might do is I may I may throw the Disney Universal discussion to the end. That's fine. Yeah. And 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 put the comic talk ahead of it. But just as a quick uh, quick by the way of a you know thank you. Uh, I, I received another care package in the mail today from uh, Mark Kalmbach, uh, who's who's taken to sending me. I guess in in uh, in light of our F Troop uh, coverage. He sent me. He sent me some gold key and some Dell books. There's a Happy Days one. There's uh, some. I think there's some Flipper. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't. I don't have them in front of me right now. But he he sent me probably probably about a dozen books or so, and uh, you know m- more for like kind of the uh, quirkiness of them than the actual stories. But they're kind of fun to have, and I really appreciate it sending them. And I always like appreciate the little doodle on the envelope. People send you things. Uh, I think you opened that door for me. Oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> Which I, you sent me the uh, the treasury size books, which is awesome because yes. I love those. So if I never thanked you personally for them, uh, well, you did. We I talked have. about it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, if they found a good home, I'm happy. Uh, they they found a home where they're very appreciated. Yeah. 
Now, did those come from your your personal collection, Dave, or, or is that something yeah, you picked I, up? No, along I, the way, I picked them up. I'd read most of those, and, I, and I'm like, I don't know how to store these damn things. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to find somebody who wants them and send them that way. There was a few that I, I think I gave the Superman Shazam to Charlie Niemeyer because mm-hmm. I got the trade, uh, but most of them went to went to Paul. Oh, and again, much appreciated. Because you sent me the the Superboy one that I lacked yeah, for Superboy all those and the years. Legion. I, yeah, yeah, really appreciated. Is that the that. one with the wedding? Yep. Uh, yes, that's yeah. a good one. I used to have all of them, and now I only have a handful. I would I would say you probably matched as many as I already had with what you sent me. You probably doubled what I have. So. The only one that I'm I'm still chasing at this point, or that I that I know exists that I don't have that I want is there's one I think it's called the Rampaging Hulk. I think. And it has him fighting, I think it has him fighting several enemies, but the one I can remember that's on the cover is Betty as the Harpy. Yep. And it, it reprints that whole Harpy storyline. Which we but, covered the intro to that yeah. episode a while ago. Yeah, I, I, I know the, the one you're talking about. But My the reason, LCS may have that. I, I will actually go check for you. Yeah, if you'll price it for me, I, I'd be very interested, but I, I got to get it on the cheap is the thing, because here's the thing is... Um, I'm not really interested in all that that's in it, but it has a story in there um, where Wolverine and Hercules meet for the first time. That was picked up later when there was that... um, I'm trying to remember what the hell the name of it was. It was one of those... uh, No, I'm not going to be able to think of the writer, but there was that writer that was doing those Hercules miniseries there a couple of years ago. And... In one of his Hercules minis, he referenced Wolverine and, and Hercules having met. And I'm like, when the where the hell did that ever happen? And I looked it up, and he was referencing that story. And then somewhere online or something, I found a story with him where he told the whole backstory as he had this comic, this oversized treasury when he was a kid and fell in love with that story and had always wanted to write a sequel to it. So that's where this mini came from. And I thought, well, that's really cool. And so I want to read it. But it's only in that book, and because it has Wolverine in it, now it's crazy expensive. Mm. So, you know, I, I had an uh, an intro for myself for this episode that I, I meant to send you in in advance, and I, I totally forgot to do it. But uh, I always like to think of myself. This probably sounds terribly big headed, but I like to think of myself <laughs> as the guy that kind of tries to bring sense to an ever increasingly nonsensical world. And having listened to the the latest bill centric episodes of back to the bins i like to think of myself as bringing sense to an increasingly nonsensical podcast so yeah that's that's my intro (laughs) is that gonna catch me hell with dr bill now he's gonna be like hey we we do generally like to make bill the target of scorn and ridicule (laughs) you do (laughs) well i just don't come to his defense as often as i should I, I, I did last week when uh, we when we recorded because uh, I just finished editing the episode we did, and there was some point where I I said something slightly abusive to him, and uh, and you started cracking up and you said, "I thought it, he said it." <laughs> <laughs> so Scott's the passive child in this in this odd marriage. Hmm. I guess that's one way to look. Yeah. At it. Okay. <laughs> I remember they were fighting, and I just cried in my room. You know, I don't think that happens. <laughs> I just I grab think... a bucket of popcorn and sit back. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little bit closer to the truth. <laughs> All right. So I get the first book today because I'm Mr. Marvel. 
I'm beginning to think of myself as Mr. Mobile because I'm surprised at how many fellow podcasters, if they had to pick, and I'm I'm not into the, you know, either your Marvel or your DC, but everybody has their own, like when they first started reading which company they went into, it seems. And it seems like most of my fellow podcasters were DC first. Hmm. And whereas I, I was Marvel first. But yeah, for whatever the case may be, that's that's my sweet spot. Well, Scott, aren't you technically Marvel first because of Star Wars? Or you had you you'd been reading before that you had super I, I, yeah I had been reading before that it's funny because I never really thought of it that way I've always thought of myself as a DC boy but when you say it like that you know I, I always claim Marvel Star Wars is my gateway drug into comics so I guess technically that does make me a Marvel first but it was Star Wars so <laughs> well by, you know, by Marvel not... first though I don't even think I don't even mean it from the point of view of the first book that caught your eye because actually if we had to go with that I, I had seen more DC books before I started collecting. Um, but I just mean like when you, when you got hooked onto the, into the superhero scene. Oh, okay. Right. With superheroes, it was definitely DC cause it was yeah. Superman and then Superman, you know, just by being Superman branched into everything else, you know? Whereas like when I started, you know, Marvel was deeply into the bronze age and DC was still really kind of producing silver age books. Right. So it was much more compelling to get into Marvel just then. And then as I got older and I grew more of an appreciation for kind of the Silver Age sensibilities, I, I then kind of took on DC. But in the beginning, you know, Marvel was so much more, uh, at least seemingly complex in its presentation, you know? Yeah. Right. So that, that well, was one of the one of my personal mandates for myself in the, the crisis coverage that Michael Bailey and I are, are doing over on Tales is to try to to make my point and really, you know, explain and kind of sell my point that while I respect people like say Charlie Niemeyer who I think made a a, a valiant case for you know Superman having say a, a golden age, a silver age and a bronze age, personally I've always rejected that because I look at the you know I believe it's the very last page if I'm not mistaken of crisis number 8 gives you know it says essentially 1956 to 1985 as the uh kind of the the birth and death date of the of the major character who dies in that story and i think it's purposely done that way because that character ushered in the silver age of comics and so giving that date from 56 to 85 i think was you know illustrating the fact that this brings to a conclusive close this silver age of comics i personally kind of poo poo the idea of dc ever really having a bronze age i mean yeah they there was a there was a change there was a shift but not like there was with marvel where where you know there were definite ages of marvel where you could see a, a progression to me dc didn't hit their you know, their modern age, essentially, or, or whatever you want to call whatever was after the, the Silver Age until 85, because crisis is that delineating line. Everything pre-crisis to me, you know, from 56 to 85, it's all Silver Age. I agree with you to a great extent. What I think happened is I and I and that's I've said this in the past, and I totally agree with you that DC kind of got mired in the Silver Age and took them a long time to mature. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if that's a fair word. But what they did was they had glimpses of it. 
the Neil Adams, oh, Denny O'Neill yeah. Batman, the Deal, mm-hmm. Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill Green Arrow, Green Lantern, uh, the the Marv, Marv Wolfman, George Perez Teen Titans. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what other things. The, there were, the there Mike were pockets. Legion of Superheroes. Pockets, exactly, yeah. yeah. But DC as a whole I, didn't, yeah. Exactly, and so I think certain characters or certain facets of their universe, you might be able to make an argument for a Bronze Age, but as a company whole, I, I think the argument falls apart because I don't think, even with taking into account the Kryptonite Nevermore story and things like that, it, it didn't stick. You know what I mean? Superman eventually regressed into stories that were just as Silver Agey as the 50s. Yeah, you had so, Kryptonite Nevermore, and then you had the cover where Superman controlled all the water in the world and wouldn't let anybody else have any. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, the, the thing, you know, you mentioned the uh, the Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill Green Air, uh, Green Lantern stuff. And that's what everybody seems to want to point to is that, oh, that's the delineating line. That's where the Bronze Age really starts. Well, yes, for that character. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and it did bring a, a sense of maturity and, and social commentary and relevance and everything, much like, say, like the drug issues of Spider-Man. However, it didn't change the company it affected the medium which is weird but it didn't change you know you didn't suddenly have okay this is a really big thing and this is you know this is suddenly this this puts us in a new thing so suddenly now batman and superman are going to be socially relevant and socially aware and and much more mature and we're going to go you know it didn't do that you know those characters were unaffected by it so that's why i make that argument that and and i agree with you you still had silver agey stuff coming out in the brave and the bold and you still had silver Mm -hmm. agey stuff coming out in world's finest and 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 even though the characters crossed over you never really felt like there was a a universal continuity there no not at all Whereas Marvel did a real good job with the universal continuity right from the start. And DC eventually got there, but it took Crisis to do it. Right. So, I, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think DC ever had a true Bronze Age, but they had glimpses of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where Marvel, it was, the tone of the entire line was radically different. Right. Well, and, and the delineating line there, I think, as much as I love Stan Lee, was when Stan stopped writing and the next age of writers mm-hmm. came in. Yep. That's what yeah. I think was – and actually, and you got to count Stan and Roy, I think, because Roy was yeah. still writing The Silver Age as well. But once once you started getting in Jerry Conway and Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber and, and uh, I'm trying even to think – I can't even think of all the different names. But once you started bringing in that next generation of writer, that's when Marvel hit the Bronze Age. Lynn Wein, Marv Wolfman, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that to say oh. – all that what? <laughs> All of that to say, Paul's issue is the Bronze yeah, Age. All that to say, my, my book is a, mo- is a more modern book. Yes. <laughs> my book was published in August of 1990, and it is a very well-publicized book, having sold, if my memory is accurate, somewhere around 2.75 million copies, which would probably... I think it's one of the top-selling books ever, if not... Still, yeah. You know, I, Super I think, Pro sold that many issues? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think X Men number one was the was the the biggest. I think X Men one still remains. Uh, Star Wars, the new Star Wars, may be putting that in in contention, but yeah, this, wow. it still remains the biggest. This would be number two, and X Force may be number three. That order almost, may be X Force being but... number three is almost a a, a, a disgrace. What yeah. which one hit first, X Men or Spider Man? Uh, uh Spider Man. So this X Men came around then... in 1991. Okay. okay, all right. Yeah, I could not remember. 
And so if anybody hasn't picked up, this is Spider-Man number one from August of 1990, which sported a cover price of $1.75. The cover by Todd McFarlane shows Spider-Man in a poster-type pose, crouching among some webs that are loaded with spiders, interestingly. The story is titled Torment Part 1, and it was written and drawn by Todd McFarlane, letters by Rick Parker, colors by Bob Sharon, edited by Jim Salakrup, and the editor-in-chief at that time was Tom DeFalco. The story opens in New York City, and it appears to be the overcrowded world of the Soylent Green movie, uh, at least as McFarlane presents it. It's people! (laughs) But because of his crazy webs, Spider-Man is able to swing above the city and ignore the maddening crowd. Until, of course, he comes across a woman being mugged by a dude, smoking a cigarette, wearing a headband, and wielding a gun. So we know he's a bad guy. Spider-Man warns him to drop the gun, but the dude decides to take his chances and starts shooting at Spider-Man instead. Spider-Man avoids the shots, and then with relative ease, uses strength that he apparently stole from Superman to crush the gun barrel with his bare hand. He webs the guy and leaves him hanging. We cut to another New York locale, a sanctuary with animal head trophies hanging and apparent jungle drums, where a solitary figure among smoke says, Rise. In response, in the East River, the lizard slowly rises from the water. From there, we spend some time with a young couple of narcissists as they sit on a couch (laughs) and soak in just how wonderful they both really are. Yes, it's Peter Parker and Mary Jane. Cut back to the lizard who's about to eat a scrumptious rat when he spies a better prey, a group of thieves. We cut back again to our self-indulgent couple who appear ready to do the nasty. Cut back to the lizard once again who's attacking the group of thieves. And let's just say they don't really have much of a chance and, well, it ends kind of bloody. We have another quick glimpse of the mysterious person who is apparently pulling the strings on the lizard. Cut back to Peter, who it seems only puts on a shirt when he's wearing a Spider-Man suit. He heads off to investigate a newspaper headline saying that three men were slashed to death. We're given several shots of Spider-Man swinging on webs that defy physics. And at the same time, the lizard attacks a man who was taking a shortcut uh, on the road. The road less traveled, and I guess the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. We end the issue with a split page. On the left is Spider-Man swinging in the daylight over the city, while on the right uh, we have the lizard, surprisingly enough at the same time, but in darkness, uh, below waiting and hungering for a hero. Next, the very creatively titled Part 2. And that's our whole story. And once again, going into a decompressed book, I finish it saying, wow, nothing really happened. No. (laughs) No. We went through a whole book and nothing happened. And this is, to me, this is a very interesting time because Todd McFarlane, and, and Dave, you might have a little bit more of a perspective on this having uh, worked on Pad Smash. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like really the flavor of the month for, for quite a while. Oh, yes. And probably was well overpraised for a long, long time. And his books probably went in, up in value way too much. And then as... Often is the case there was a backlash that was probably equally undeserved. That all of a sudden, you know, oh, he doesn't know how to tell a story and his artwork is ridiculous. And like, you know, he was too loved and now I think he's too hated. Yeah. And the thing is, he's not really a factor anymore. He's 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 the business at this stage. And to watch Todd evolve, you know, as you mentioned, Pad Smash, we did the Incredible Hulk issues. He originally had some storytelling chops. And then under a good writer like Peter David or course david michelini 
he was fine. He brought, I mean, he revived Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. Spider-Man was doing okay. Michelini and McFarlane brought Spider-Man to the top spot. So say what you want about McFarlane, but you know he knows when to hit it out of the park. Until you get to this issue, <laughs> because yeah, well, he was—I mean, no. he was really wanting a lower-profile book, but he wanted his to try his hand at writing, and they decided to say, "Hey, yeah, Todd, write your own Spider-Man book." No, let me ask you: Were either of you guys collecting McFarlane at the time that this came out? No. Or, you know, collecting the title that he was on. I was not collecting no. comic books at all when okay. this came out. I was collecting comics, but I wasn't getting Spider-Man except for here and there. What I, uh, I, was I, I was just kind of su- surprised by what you said, Paul, because I, I, I'm guessing you're assuming I was not. And uh, I'm actually in the in the unique position with, with this particular book that uh, I was there. So... <laughs> Well, no, I, I actually didn't know. I didn't really have an assumption on that. What, what I ended up doing was somewhere around, I'd say probably around 2000 or so, one of my friends was looking to pare down his collection a little bit, and he was throwing, I think it was the first 30 issues of this series onto eBay for mm-hmm. 15 bucks. So I said, you know what, I'll give you 15 bucks for them, and you, you could save the eBay commission, and that's it. And I, so I bought them from so at 50 cents each. Mm. Uh and, and, you know, I like the McFarlane artwork. I do think it's a little exaggerated at times and it's a little self-indulgent at times. But I, I like it. I, I find it to be stylistic in a way that I can enjoy. He needs to be reined in from time to time, though. <laughs> yes, well, again, like that's I said, it's a little self-indulgent at times. That's the thing. See, it, it just so happens. It, it's really strange, you know, because I had no idea what you were bringing to the table tonight until you uh, you told me earlier today. And. When uh, when I pulled this up and I looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, this is a weird bit of serendipity because it just so happens that the next issue of Infinity Incorporated that we'll be covering on Tales of the Justice Society of America, um, which starts uh, episode 92, will be the one where Todd McFarlane took over as the regular artist of that series. Now, he that was his first like regular gig. He had done a couple other things like Coyote and things like that, but he didn't ever have a, a monthly book. That was his first one. And uh, I was just saying to Michael Bailey on that show how much I'm really looking forward to re-examining and re- rediscovering that stuff because that's where McFarlane cut his teeth and gained a lot of what would become his very distinctive style. I have very fond memories of that, you know, because at the time that I acquired those issues, I was already a huge McFarlane fan because I just, I literally discovered Todd McFarland in a bus station in Utica, New York. Cause I, I had just joined the, the air force. I had just gotten assigned to my first base, which was in Rome, New York I didn't have a car yet. So a buddy drove me to the bus station. I was waiting for the bus to go home and visit my parents. And I went into this newsstand that had a comic rack. And on that comic rack, they had, um, I I don't remember what the issue number is now, but it's the issue where Wolverine is on the cover with his blades out. And the Hulk, the gray Hulk is reflected in the blades. And the weird thing about it is, while I liked the Hulk, I was never a huge fan. And I, at that time, I actively hated Wolverine because of his overexposure. And the fact that that cover could get me over both of those hurdles and make me actually pick it up, thumb through it and go, damn, and buy it says something about the power of, of McFarlane's art at that time. 
And so then I started collecting the Hulk. I acquired the the few back issues that were at that time, you know, leading back to when McFarlane became the artist because that was pretty early in the, in that run in that Peter David run when uh, when McFarlane uh, was the artist. And I read it, you know, all the way through until he left and he went over to Spider Man. So he jumps over to Spider Man, and then Spider Man was being written by Michelini at the time. And I read that all the and collected that all the way through as well and thought it was great and was really enjoying it. Although by the end of that run was starting to feel like McFarlane was playing out. And a lot of that feeling was because his style continued to mutate and continue to change and not always in the best of ways. And in a, in a weird sort of way, I started to suspect he was getting a little bit lazy and sloppy with his stuff. But also, he was starting to be highly imitated by other people that didn't have as great a grasp on his art style as as he himself did. And so there was re- it was reaching this like oversaturation point because not only was McFarland seemingly on everything at one time, but then you had all these imitators that were out there too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, the end with him and uh, and, and Michelin, actually, I think Michelini stayed on Spider-Man a bit longer. But anyway, he left Spider-Man. They created a, this title for him. You know, they created a brand new Spider-Man title so that he, the supposed star of the amazing Spider-Man, could now be completely unleashed. And this is what we got. And this was the last McFarlane book I ever bought. This first because, is this the only one. Yeah, I, I read this and I thought, this is crap. Because <laughs> the best way to sum it up is just to simply say, you, sir, are no David Michelini. While the pictures are pretty, his art style had changed to a point. I remember looking at this and going, this is Todd believing his own hype mm-hmm. because he's just he's unleashed here. He, he doesn't feel to me like anybody's reining him in and going, Todd, that doesn't look right. Could you redraw that? You know, because while I really liked his style and I, and I remain, I mean, I still like his style, although I'm not the rabid fanboy I one, once was about it. I don't think it's dated very well in a lot of aspects. But you look at this, especially with Peter and Mary Jane, the lovey-dovey scenes, they both look freakishly deformed. <laughs> and somebody should have, you know, I mean, you look at this one page. I wish the damn pages were numbered, but the page where... Peter Parker has his hand spread and he's saying, heck, I even had a had, had one against Thanos, for God's sake. Look at him. That's I, mean, exact, I knew the page you were going to. There's something. One eye is bigger than the other. They're offset. I mean, he, he looks deflated. Yeah, he, he looks partially deflated. Yeah, he does. It's just not right. So somebody should have been like, yeah, that doesn't work, Todd. Can you redraw that? But there was nobody to do that. He, he was being just given free reign with this and then the fact that he wrote it himself and just didn't have writing chops and uh he needed a strong editor he yeah he did he needed a strong editor and he needed a real writer you know well maybe maybe even if he had an editor on the writing and had been convinced to kind of tighten it up right you know well that was the other thing with this is that you know today decompressed storytelling has become such a thing, you know, such a buzzword. Every, you know, we all talk about, it, we all complain about it, but you know, decompress, decompress. You have to remember that didn't really exist at this time. This to me is where I became aware of that for the very first time, because I, I mean, I bought this new off the stands and I can remember 
reading this in about a minute and a half and being like, that's it? That, that's all there is. And and that's why I, I, I did not continue forward with it. What's funny is that this was so highly touted and everything. And you know, as you say, Paul, you know, you got these for 50 cents a piece. You know, I don't know if you remember, but this book was one of the first books of that new trend of multiple, multiple, multiple covers. I mean, it had this cover, it had a silver cover, it had a gold cover. Mm-hmm. It had all these different covers. And for a time, depending on which variant it was, some of those covers were ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. I now have almost all the variants of this book and I've purchased them all from 50 cent bins or less. Yeah, so I totally, I totally believe it because they printed so many. Yeah, they printed so many. It just it hasn't had the staying power. So I think it's funny you didn't mention this. And I wondered if you knew the backstory of it. On the cover, there's a little box right next to Spider-Man's head that says "The Legend of the Arachnite." That was a dig at DC because DC, not long before this, had published the first variant covers with um, "Legends of the Dark Knight" when that hit. Because remember, Legends of the Dark Knight had four different colors uh, on the border of the cover of issue mm-hmm. one. You had a, it was like a blue and like a Pink. day glow yellow. Yeah. And yeah. And so that's, that's what that's referring to. Not but they did the same it. damn thing. They did variant <laughs> covers too. So it's just, it's really funny. I like that you point out that this did not have staying power because this was the book you saw when you went into your, your comic shop. It was on the wall, $20, $30. Right. Hulk, Incredible Hulk 340, which was not hyped at all. Is now running. I just checked eBay. Forty dollars for a decent copy. Is that the Wolverine one? Yep, that's the Wolverine one. And at one time, that was like the friggin' book because mm-hmm. you you could tell watching the price guides and stuff. You could tell when the the McFarlane thing was just done because when this when when I discovered McFarlane and was buying not so much when I was getting the Hulk, but definitely when he jumped to Spider Man, the the Amazing Spider Man. I was buying like three and four copies of that and ended up selling all of my extra copies, my, my surplus copies for crazy prices. That's when I was doing the whole speculator thing for a while, like everybody else was. But these days, I don't think beyond amazing 299 and 300, I don't think any of those books price anything at all anymore. I, th- I think some of them, you know, I, I don't think any of them price like significantly. Right, but I think you know you'll you'll see some of them for like five bucks or whatever because yeah, I mean, you know, but no, just... I mean, you you were talking at one time you're talking like I remember there were some of them that were like sixty, seventy bucks. Yeah, oh no, yeah, I don't think you see anything like well, that. yeah, and, you, like uh, you said, two ninety eight and three hundred, three hundred one, those will remain because yeah. well, Venom, Venom, yeah, because I just recently moved my copies. Yeah, what would you get for them if you don't mind my asking? It did it in store trade, and I uh, I did it trade, pardon me, and I I got about. I mean, for my whole run, two forty-eight to four hundred, I got about uh, seven hundred for just bad. for the for the whole run in store trade. So yeah, that would be about four fifty in in cash. Because I sold my last spare copy of three hundred just before Spider-Man three came out, and I'm trying to remember what I got for it. I want to say I got two or two fifty out of it. I think. Wow. It, I mean, it went a lot higher than, and I did it on eBay. And it went a lot higher because I figured a hundred. If it hit a hundred bucks, I'd have been happy on it because I can't remember what I started it out at. I think I started at like fifty bucks or something like that. And if I, if it had hit a hundred, I'd been like, eh, man, you know, that's what I expected. And I know it at least doubled that. So yeah, it was between two and two fifty, I think. 
But like I and, said, uh, I, I think there was too much of a. I think there's been too much of a rubber band effect with McFarlane. Like I said, he went from the flavor of the month where everybody absolutely adored everything he did to mm-hmm. the point where people are saying, you know, the guy can't draw at all. And, and, and that's, 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 that's not so fair. Weird. That is not. Well, it's not fair, but it's not true either because yeah. while there is some really wonky shit in this issue. A lot of which I, I will just, you know, I'll just flat out blame on the fact that he was just unleashed at the same rate, you know, and it's weird because it's it's a very disjointed issue because you'll look at one page or in, in some instances, a couple of pages where you flip through and go, this is really bad. And then all of a sudden you hit a page that's like, oh, my God. Or even in some cases on the same page, there, there's this one page that makes me crazy because it's it's where Peter uh, web, web swings for the first time um, after all the lovey-dovey scenes. So at the top of the page, you've got him swinging, and it says, now this is the life, a nice fresh day. And he literally looks like he could blow himself in the <laughs> position that he's got. Right? I mean, it's I hate to be that crude, but it's true. I mean, he could do it if he wanted to in the way that he's bent in half. And it looks ridiculous. Yeah. But then you look at the bottom panel of him swinging over the tower, and that's like that's Spider-Man to me. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's beautiful, and it's it's well proportioned. The anatomy is really good, and it still maintains that McFarlane spideriness that he was going for. And so it's weird. Right there on the same page, you've got two wild extremes. And, uh, you know, but this also kind of set a trend of sorts of the art suddenly being the thing, you know, that, that people were, you know, they were suddenly focused on the arts over the story. And that's one of those nineties things, you know, that's one of those things that became a real trope and a real pitfall of the nineties, in my opinion. And one of the things that I think the nineties gets so dogged for and why a lot of people have very negative uh, either th- memories or just things to say about the 90s because it did for uh, a time the art trumps story. And, and when and that yet happened, in the 90s, you had the onset of so many artistic trends that I don't care for at all. You know, the uh, mm-hmm. taking superhero books and drawing them in a manga style. Um, just a lot of like real art- artists who. You know, I think we said it about Liefeld, you know, who who probably could have used two more years in art school before they came out and started drawing professionally, uh, right. learn a little bit more about anatomy and, and, and composition. Um, there was a lot of that going on. And, and I, I think it was the overproliferation of books. And while there are so many good books in the 90s, there were also so many shit books in the 90s because I think that they got to the point where they, they had the feeling we could throw anything on the stand and people will pay money for it. Right. And, and, and you that's know, a problem I have with the name. It, it probably sounds really harsh to say it because I, I don't typically like it myself when people will point to something and go, this is what's to blame for that. But, you know, I, I got to say it in a lot of ways, this book is to blame for that because you've got a book that essentially is a bunch of pretty pictures all strung together. It's not much of a story, at least as you know, for a first issue anyway, there's there's really not much meat here. Yet it sold bazillions, you know, and I think it created a trend which was a dangerous trend, which led to a lot of the things that happened in the 90s that everybody bitches about. And, you know, I I think it all directly correlates back to this. Actually, I'll go a little bit further. 
Because I think you're right, but I think this has its seeds in Daredevil, in Frank Miller, the first real artist, superstar. Well, you have Neil Adams, but the writer artist right? who came along, decided, you know, I'm going to reinvigorate this. And then he was given certain opportunities, Dark Knight Returns, Ronan. And that sort of set the stage for McFarlane, uh, Liefeld. So the seeds of it goes, I would say, would go back to Frank Miller. And it grew into this and then it got way out of control. I'll agree and I'll disagree because while I think a lot of what what Miller started doing once he became a, a, such a superstar and everything, a, a lot of it was just, you know, just kind of comic book masturbation. <laughs> at that same rate, at least Miller could tell mm-hmm. he, he could still tell a, an entertaining tale, both visually and you know, he could tell a story. See, yeah, but I, then the marketing people start salivating because they're looking for the next Frank Miller. Right. So that's when that mentality uh, I said, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that when I'll that mentality with... started. Yeah. And, and it, this would have been this would have been the turning point very yeah. easily. The, the, the funny thing is, I think Todd McFarlane, at least his 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 fantastic characters, his, his everyday people, I'm not crazy about at all. Uh, but, you know, his superheroes, his supervillains and all of that, I think are. In they're they're far more suited to the style that I like than Frank Miller, mm-hmm. and yet I think Frank Miller is a far superior storyteller visually. Yes. Than mm-hmm. than McFarlane ever was, even McFarlane at his best. Well, um, Miller would would look back on people like Eisner and take the great things that Eisner would do and put them into his his work. Miller revered that artistic history. McFarlane wanted to to blaze his own trail, and that's not necessarily bad, but. You have to be mindful of what's come before. But I, th- I think McFarlane, you know, read too many of his own reviews and believed them too much. And, and, and you know, as far as uh, financial career, he's done wonderful for himself. So I guess he didn't make a mistake. Right. But as far as really putting his stamp on the industry, I think he may have missed an opportunity a little bit. I think he could have done so much more with his career than what he really did had he hooked himself up with – either a much better writer or at least a really, really strong editor who wasn't going to be a yes man for his self-indulgence. Well, no, well I'm, and I'm, see, I'm not an apologist for McFarlane, but he has, with Spawn being the independent book it is, you know, he's heading towards breaking Cerebus' uh, record. And I think his style was suited to Spawn. Um, Spawn has vapid moments, but McFarlane in the early days would bring in Grant Morrison or Neil Gaiman or Frank Miller. McFarlane, once he stabilized on Spawn, I think he's left a, a greater mark because that's a very long-running independent book, and and that was part of the industry change in the '90s. But I think it's we, also out of the public view at this point. I don't think I don't think right. Spawn is is a significant book to the everyday crowd. No, I, okay, I'll give you that. I can see what you're saying. Well, I, I think Spawn and and Cerebus are, are both apt comparisons because you know I, I see Spawn today the same way I saw Cerebus when I was a kid was like, what is that? You know, I was aware that it was out there and it was something that other people were reading, but I was, <laughs> I never paid any attention to it. And I think it's kind of the same thing. You know, I, I want to go back to something that, that you said, Paul, about, you know, Mc, where McFarlane kind of scuttled himself is where he started believing his own hype. That's clearly what this book is. So I will play McFarlane apologist just in the aspect of, uh, again, kind of feeling like I was there on the ground floor, sort of. I mean, I wasn't there for the, the Infinity Inc. stuff. I discovered that later. 
But I discovered it at a point where he had just come off of it, too, because I'm telling you, as soon as I discovered him on Hulk, it's like I got to find everything this guy did because I, I just I just fell in love with his art style. So, you know, I, I, I look at a lot of that Infinity Inc. stuff as very innovative. I mean, he he definitely brought something new and fresh at the time. The thing that's going to be fun for me to, to reexamine and, and, and kind of try to answer the question is. He was new, he was fresh, he was doing something other people hadn't been doing, but was he truly an innovator? Which is going to be a weird question to try to tackle, because at the time, I mean, if you were to ask somebody in the 90s, is Todd McFarlane an innovator? They'd laugh at you and go, well, of course he is. Everybody's imitating. But today, 20-something years later, is he? Because today, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that wants to draw like Todd McFarlane, because you're, you're right. He went from the golden child to hated by a lot of people. And I don't quite understand how that happened or why that happened, but it did happen. You know, you know where who it happened to also that you can, I think you can almost see a little bit of a parallel is Alex Ross. Mm. You, you, you look at what Mm -hmm. he did, you know, with Marvels and with uh, kingdom come and, and, and some things and, and people were, you know, just overwhelmed by it, how great it looked and everything. Mm -hmm. And then, at some point, all of a sudden, everybody started to say, oh, all his things is just, you know, all his pictures are just uh, photo reference that he did them. He doesn't do any storytelling. They're, they're just a bunch of, you know, posed pictures. So it's like, well, when did he went, go from being the greatest artist in comics history to being the worst? Well, I think the common denominator, if there is one, for me anyway, with both Todd McFarland and Alex Ross, overexposure. Yeah, I because think you're right. I liked Ross when he first came along, and I was one of. And while I was never like a super fan, at the same rate, I was one of those people that was like, you know, anytime I saw his stuff, I was like, hey, that's I like that. That looks really good. And then at some point, he hit that point of like, Jesus, Alex Ross again. He just seemed like he was everywhere, and I, I think people forget that that was a lot of what was going on with McFarlane at that time. You know, at this time, like when Spider Man came out as well was that he was just everywhere. I mean, he was doing so many covers and guest shots, and and it just got to be like, oh, McFarlane again. And along with that oversaturation was also the fact, like I say, that his style was ever mutating, ever changing. And I, I, I'm just being honest. I think by the time he got to this book, I think he was getting sloppy. I don't know if it was laziness. I don't know if it was being overworked. I don't know if it was just he didn't give a shit because the money was rolling in so fast. I, I don't know. But there's a lot of this that's, you know, for this being kind of like the high point of his career, it's not representative of his best stuff, which is such a weird dichotomy. You know, you would think that the thing that's like, th- this is your peak would be your best stuff. And it for him, it's not. This mm-hmm. is actually McFarlane on the decline, as far as I'm concerned. He'd already peaked by this point, artistically. I, I don't know if either of you guys agree, but you know, at the t- this I'm I'm saying like this is how I felt at the time this came out. Because I literally I bought this issue and I, at that point I was like, you know what? I think my Todd McFarlane thing's done. And I didn't buy another issue. Everything else I've got, because I eventually did track down the rest of this what was this called? Doom? Was that the name of the storyline? Torment. 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 Yeah. That was it. I eventually tracked it all down in like 50 cent boxes and read it. And I was like, well, I'm glad I made that decision because 
I've read the remaining issues and yeah, there's, it, there's, there's no meat on these bones. There's nothing there. It's a bunch of pretty pictures. I felt the same way about this as I felt about that hush storyline in Batman a few years ago. It's a bunch of pretty pictures, but there's nothing there. No, and it, I, and I it like, takes like Spider-Man into a, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was, I was just, I was just saying quickly, I, I, I enjoyed hush as a story more than I enjoyed this. Yeah, <laughs> but there's not a story. It's just a bunch of Jim Lee pictures, isn't it? Nah, there, there was, there was. I mean, it wasn't. Don't get me wrong. It was Jeff Loeb. You, you never get too deep with Jeff Loeb, but but there was a a story. Uh, this is just you know, it, it wasn't decompressed the way this is. This like nothing happened. Right. Yeah. Except that, for a few darkness uh, moments, because it felt. Right. You know what it felt like? It felt like McFarlane was aiming to do Dark Knight Returns. That he was going for that Batman tone. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man's not that character. Right. And that's why it always struck me off that it's dark and gritty. And I'm like, I don't, even even at what was I, 13? I didn't, I knew that was the wrong tone for Spider-Man. That that was not the path to take the, the web head down. Yeah, I, I I keep looking at this and the thing that just keeps coming back to me is the... Shots of Spider-Man, for the most part, uh, certainly a notable exception was that one pose that you pointed out, Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the shots of the lizard, for the most part, all look pretty good. Yeah. But every shot of a normal person, I think, pretty much looks like shit. They all look <laughs> like Rocky Dennis. Everybody looks like Rocky <laughs> Dennis in this book. <laughs> Except for the the uh, the mugger who looks like Gambit. Yeah. On steroids. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking, did you ever play the video game Streets of Rage? No. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Scott gets it. <laughs> well, you know, you, you have to remember too, and and this really came back to me heavily as I, you know, as I was reading the issue and as I'm flipping back through it now. You know, I, I think you you said it very well, Paul, in the beginning of your synopsis when you called the cover a poster image, because you have to remember a lot of the look of this, particularly with. Spider-Man is because everything that McFarlane was drawing at this time was becoming a poster. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you the number of McFarlane posters I had and probably still have a lot of. I mean, there were there were several uh, McFarlane Hulk posters, you know, the Gray Hulk posters. Mm-hmm. There were several McFarlane Spider-Man posters. And then that was at the time that oh, I can't remember the name of the company. Graphic, maybe? I can't remember. But there was one company out there that seemed like they had a new McFarlane t-shirt every Graffiti. week. Yeah. Graffiti Designs. That was it. Yeah. Because I had a great one. Um, Dave, you'll probably remember this. Remember the, the Hulk issue where it's Hulk and the X Factor? And they break out of a factory or something and they get outside and the Hulk sees the sun. And he's like, ah, oh, crap. And then he starts changing back to Banner, but he's fighting the the transition and he talks through the entire transition from Hulk back to Banner. You, you know, and, the yeah, they're basically bickering. About? Yeah, I and know. I know. I don't remember the exact issue, but I know the one you're talking about. That was a T-shirt, it, and oh. all it was was those panels. It was they were like strip style panels, you know, like 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 vertical stripes, and it was those panels on a T-shirt. That was one of my favorite T-shirts for a long time. And there was a T-shirt of the one where the Hulk on the on the cover of the Hulk, he's compressing the words Hulk together with his hands. Yeah, the ground so, I mean, zero. Yeah, I mean that added to you know kind of the legend of McFarlane, but also that that added to also that oversaturation. So 
I think that's a lot of why this book kind of feels like almost like the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man poster book, because I'm sure that was another one of the intents was that a lot of these panels were going to end up becoming, you know, T-shirts or posters. And And probably probably all the ones showing the superheroes and supervillains, which is probably why they look better, because he probably paid more attention when he was drawing them. Mm Mm-hmm. And he can sell the original art, so yeah. if it's a Spider-Man page, it's going to go for more than what you would see with just random folks. So, yeah, same thing. That's why he probably put a lot of work into Spidey and the Lizard. Because there's a, a page, I don't know if it's in this particular issue, but I know that there is a page in this Torment storyline of the Lizard that was a t-shirt. I mm-hmm. didn't have it, but I remember it. So, yeah, I think that's a lot of why this is the way it is and looks the way it looks. Yeah. It's it just, let's just say that I did pick a flawed book today. <laughs> you picked a book that spawned a hell of a lot of conversation. Yeah. yeah I, I was really surprised. I honestly thought it would. And that's one of the reasons I picked it. And knowing that, uh, Dave did, uh, you know, pad smash, which covered a lot of McFarlane issues. I, I kind of handpicked this one for that reason. <laughs> Good pick. But uh, I guess let's let's rate this this puppy. Uh, the cover, I like the cover, but it's a poster. It's not a cover. Um, but it's cool looking. <laughs> uh, I I wish it just gave me something to show that it was going to be him and the lizard. Uh, I'm going to give it a B. I think it's it's pretty solid. I don't really understand why all the spiders are on there other than because Actually, it's Spider Man. You notice McFarland signed his name with a question mark. Oh, I didn't most of his yeah. just now. Yeah. yeah, his ASM run, he would have hidden spiders on the cover, and in that in his under his signature, there'd be a number for how many spiders. With this, there are so many spiders, he gave up, so he just put the question mark in. <laughs> okay, uh, but I, I'm going to say a B on the cover. Uh, the interior artwork, I don't think it really does a great job of storytelling. I think individual pages are well laid out, but I think it doesn't flow. Like it's it's not so much the storytelling as the pacing that I think is bad. Um, and and like I said, any, any images where it's a normal human face, I don't like them. I don't think they look good. I don't think they look well rendered. Uh, so the art, in my opinion, is very inconsistent. Uh, occasionally he hits some real highs, but he also seems to hit some real lows. So I'm gonna say. A, C plus on the artwork just for the highs and the story there hardly is a story um i guess i could give it a little credit for being a prelude to a clash and and we're seeing the inevitable point where the two of them are you know coming closer and closer to meeting up but i even don't i don't even think that's made to create tension with all these scenes with peter and mary jane just talking you know talking about how wonderful they are uh I'm I'm torn between giving the story a flat F or a D minus. I'm going to say D minus. I'm going to be very generous, and uh, I'm going to give the book overall a C minus. I'm I'm not too far off from you because I like the cover, but I think that's based more on nostalgia. That was a fun time to collect just before things started going downhill. So I'll give the cover. I'll stick with the C. Give the art a C because the storytelling's not there, but there are real occasional moments, especially with the colors popping off the page that the art just looks right for Spider-Man. I mean, primarily when he's lit. So I think the, the art doesn't tell a good story, but there are moments of really cool shots. So I'll give that, I'll give it a C the story. I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick with kind of what you did. I'm going to go with a D it just wasn't there, but it does 
almost create enough interest to go to the next issue. But it, this is this this suffers from writing for, for the trade before there was such a thing. So I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it overall a D. Never quite gets to average. You're on the A, Scott. Yeah, this is a tough one. Well, for one thing, Dave reminded me of something that I'd forgotten about was along with McFarlane sneaking a uh, spider into his signature, didn't he always sneak uh, Felix the cat into the artwork somewhere inside each issue? There was something, I know, yeah, I, I, and, somewhere. And I was looking through this again, trying to find Felix, and I, I didn't find him. I, I, that billboard behind him on the page where he's swinging over the city saying, now this is the life. It may arguably say Felix on it, but it's it's hard, really hard to tell. But that's the only thing I found in here that might be him. I, maybe he had dropped doing that by this point, but I know that was kind of one of his signatures at one point as well. Uh, anyway, as far as the grades, um, I got to be honest. I, I think I'm going to give the, the cover a straight up A because while it's not giving you anything about like what is the issue going to be about, it's it's issue one. And at this point, they you know comics had changed to where it wasn't so much about, you know, telling, you know, having the villain on the cover. Ah, at last I've killed Spider-Man. Ha ha ha. It was more about let's sell some books. And come on, you know, you've got McFarlane. You know, it's clearly McFarlane's Spider-Man. And I like this picture a lot. I mean, this has become, it's funny to say this about something that's only back in 1990, but it's become iconic. I mean, this has been a oft imitated and often homaged uh, comic book cover and I, I always liked this one. I always thought it was a really good cover. So I'll, I'll give it a straight up A. I really I'm, do I'm gonna, enjoy this. I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Scott, just to say you're showing your age when you say <laughs> something as recent as 1990. That is 25 years ago, my friend. Yeah, I know. But you, you know what I mean. I'm, it's still funny to me to, to think of something like that as iconic, you know, because <laughs> it's still in the in the long history of comics. It's still relatively recently, I would I would think. Actually, to put it in perspective. When this book was coming out, what would be that same time frame would have been 1965. Oh, my God. I just, I just broke my own heart. <laughs> yeah. So, so around the time that this came out, to go back in time an equal amount, you're probably looking at like the issue when, uh, when, when Norman Osborn un- unmasked Peter Parker. Wow. Somewhere, somewhere around there. Wow. All right. You made There's your point. The <laughs> um. Interior art is the hardest grade of all on this for me because of pages like the one I'm looking at. You know, at the top of the page is just horrendous. I mean, Peter Parker looks like he's been run over by a truck or something. He just you, your body doesn't bend like that. I don't care if you are a human spider. Human anatomy doesn't work like that. He has been folded in half. But then the bottom of the page is gorgeous. So it, it's this constant back and forth through the whole issue between, ew, that just doesn't look right, to, oh, my God, that's really beautiful. And so it's it's really a bitch to grade this thing on the interior art. So that being the case to where it goes from awful to beautiful and back and forth, I, I'd have to go right middle of the road. I'd have to give it a C only because you, you, you really can't lean one way or the other. Oh, I can um, and uh as far as story i I, i'm not gonna pull any punches it's a flat f not just for this first issue but i mean i've read the entire storyline it sucks there's no there's no meat on these bones this story is just it's not interesting it's not compelling 
I don't like at all what they did with the with the um, lizard in this. Now I like the lizard being a badass, and I like him being a threat. But they took him so far beyond what he had ever been in this story. He's a, he's just a flat out just murdering machine in this story, and I, I was never comfortable with that because I, I like the lizard. I, I like Doc Connors. I think he's he's one of those great Spider-Man supporting characters. And in this, they just they turned him into just, you know, a, a murderer. And I, I was never really all that comfortable with that. Um, but like I say, overall, I just I don't think the story is just anything. I, I think McFarlane, uh, I, I think he was, uh, you know, just shooting for something way beyond his skill level uh, with this particular thing. And uh, I don't recall it ever really getting much better either, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay, I guess I guess that's it for Spider-Man number one. <laughs> we are now at two hours and six minutes of recording. Jesus. <laughs> now I know some of that was we took a break. We so you know some of it's getting edited out. But do we have time enough to do more? It's it's completely up to you guys. Let's let's do Scott's book. My book was so convoluted that I still haven't processed it. <laughs> well, if, like I, if... I've sat down to try to do the synopsis. I'm like oh my god. Where do I start? And I just actually took it from Wikipedia. All right, so so why don't we why don't we do the the Batman family book, and then either either you'll use that one next time you come on, or yeah. you'll pick a different book if you decide you don't want to do that one. Yeah, I'll take another look through my humble bundle. Is it five years? You can't be more than five years. Old? It's no no. We we say at least ten years. Okay. Oh really? So that's 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 the rule of thumb. But rules, as you are aware, are made to be broken. <laughs> okay. All right. We ready to dive into the next book? Yes. Let's dive away. All right. So I got the DC this time around. This one is going back to September, October 1975. This is Batman Family number one. This was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, June 5th, 1975. The cover is by Mike Grell. And it depicts a rather doughy-looking Batman, who I do not believe was drawn by Grell, uh, pointing to a scene that was drawn by him, pointing to uh, to a scene of what I took to be George Washington yielding the already infamous Star Wars Episode Seven lightsaber and ready to hack <laughs> the attacking Robin the Teen Wonder and mo- motorcycle-riding Batgirl to pieces in front of the Capitol building. Now, while there are several stories inside this book, because this is, you know, this is one of those giants, we're just looking at the first one here. But uh, there's other stories that feature uh, members of the Batman family as well, such as uh, Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, uh, and Man Bat. But like I said, we're just focusing on the first story in the book. So the first story is entitled The Invader from Hell. It is written by Elliot S. Megan, with art by the aforementioned Mike Grell. After an exciting title splash that somewhat mirrors the cover image, but this time informs us that the foe that the di- uh, not dynamic, but rather dynamite duo will be facing is not the father of our country, but instead the man who invented eating eggs on an English muffin with, with hollandaise sauce, Benedict Arnold, riding a pink horse. <laughs> not making right that up. Carousel. <laughs> 
Our story begins in our nation's capital with the representative Barbara Gordon speaking on the House floor and telling a flashback tale of Batgirl for the congressional record while her asshole male colleagues ignore her and play cards in the background. And I'm not kidding about that either. That no, actually not at all. <laughs> her story starts when she was filming a spot intended for broadcast on the upcoming bicentennial regarding Benedict Arnold and how, despite his service record, he was passed over for promotion and so plotted in 1780 to betray West Point and thus became the nation's most despised traitor. While Barbara reads her lines off of a cue cards that are held by Dick Grayson, the picture of Benedict Arnold behind her suddenly comes to life. For 200 years, he says, the name of Benedict Arnold has lived in infamy, and he draws his sword on the frightened redhead. Today, that will end. Barbara dives out of the way, and as uh, Grayson helps her out of the room, Arnold drives his sword into the TV camera intent that, this is his words, this disgraceful display never reached the airwaves. Outside, after reassuring, or rather assuring Barbara is okay, Dick sheds his garments to become Robin the Teen Wonder as Gordon likewise changes into her bat, uh, Batgirl costume. Now they do this out of sight of one another, of course. They don't know their secret IDs at this point. Back in the studio, Arnold touches his sword, now all aflame, to the spool of film containing Barbara's report and sets it on fire. Robin charges in and attempts to take him down, but bounces off him saying, you're like a stone wall. That was a different general response, Benedict Arnold. Just then, a lasso encircles the general, but he disappears in a sparkly transporter-like effect, leaving behind a fiery message written on the wall that reads, warning, do not interfere with my plans. Love, Arnold. Well, actually it doesn't say love, Arnold, but it says Arnold. <laughs> Batgirl and Robin are confused, but the cameraman is scared shitless. Look at that panel right there. <laughs> you see the one I'm talking about? They're just yeah. looking like, what the hell is going on? But the cameraman is like terrified. He's shaking and he's sweating, and it's maybe he's having a heart attack, and they're Isn't not that even Scott noticing. Bacula? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> he probably just leaped left in there. What are all these <laughs> so the next day. Dick Grayson is fielding calls in his capacity as temporary aide to Representative Gordon, while she is, for some reason, entertaining children in her office. I don't know what that was all about. One of which asks her if it's true that she's dating TV reporter Clark Kent. Uh, suddenly, she receives a signal that there is a vote on the House floor and that she's needed. Dick follows along because he didn't think that there was supposed to be a vote today, and sure enough, it's a ruse to assemble the Congress and here, Benedict Arnold, general in the Continental Army, retired, addressed the House. He says that for two centuries his good name has been maligned by this legislative body and that his troops are at this moment moving across the river from the Pentagon to put all the Capitol's operations under his control. Dick and Barbara switch into their superhero guises and team up to stop the advancing army. However, they are overwhelmed by the bayonet-wielding soldiers and are, presently, hoisted high in the air where Arnold intends to make an example of them. But the nimble duo manage to set themselves free with little effort. Now, what I want to know is, why the hell didn't they do this earlier, and instead they chose to be dragged all through the streets of Washington by Arnold on horseback while they were tied to these, like, 
I, I guess they're supposed to be like telephone poles or something. I, I, it's really kind of strange. But if they could have escaped that easily as they do in this scene, why didn't they do it then? I, I wouldn't be want to be dragged through city streets. But anyway, Tactical Benedict advantage. Arnold. What's that? <laughs> Tactical, Tactical advantage. <laughs> Where's the tactical advantage in being skinned down the street, you know? <laughs> Robin's in short pants. <laughs> so Benedict Arnold, he's all pissed off that they've escaped him, and he turns to order his army when suddenly they pull a vanishing act and fade away. How can this be happening, he asks. And his companion, who looks a lot like Stan Lee in an all-red business suit, says that uh, he made it happen and that he's closing down the show. Old Scratch, you can't mean that. I've come so close, cries Arnold, and he begs for more time. He then attacks uh, Batgirl and Robin, saying all he needs is another sword to finish them. Old Scratch snaps his fingers, and Arnold is suddenly armed with two swords and transported along with Batgirl and Robin to a garden-like arena where they all have swords and they replay the end of the Squire of Gothos until finally... Scratch decides that the time really is up and Arnold will never defeat the American spirit personified by these two youths. And so he drags Benedict Arnold screaming back to hell. I'm not making that up. No, that's really what happens. Our story resolves with Robin pulling a Batman and telling Batgirl that hero work is no place for a girl. So she shuts him up by planting a big smacker on him and he swings away all red faced. The end. Okay, so. I For a moment, I, I want to talk more about why I picked <laughs> this particular story. Um, this is the first time, maybe ever, on this show that I, I've actually picked something that I, I don't actually own. I'm still hunting this issue. I've been hunting this one for a long time. Um, but I, I recently pulled it out and, and read it digitally just because I was curious because it's taking me so long to try to find this thing on the cheap. I'm like, is it still worth the, the hunt? Or can I give it up if, you know, once I've read it and, you know, will I be satisfied to just have read it digitally or do I really need to own it kind of thing? The reason I wanted to read it is the first comic I can ever recall reading as a kid, you know, like the earliest comic book memories that I have is uh, for Detective Comics 445. And it was because of a particular story that, that happens in there with Batman. But I remember, you know, from when I was a kid, I always had these these images in my head of like other comic book stories that I could remember, but I couldn't remember where they were from, where I had seen them. And it was like an image of um, the elongated man stretching his ear down a chimney to listen in on some bad guys and, and different things like that. Well, one of the images I could also remember was this great image of of Robin like the teen Robin leaping at somebody. And I just, I could remember the image, but again, couldn't remember where it was from. Well, anyway, you know, you fast forward a, a lot of years to where, you know, and now I'm a comic collector and I'm, I'm buying up all these back issues. And I was in this great little shop, this little town in, uh, in Georgia, this comic shop that was going out of business. And they had a bunch of great back issues that they were selling dirt cheap. Cause they just wanted to clear shit out. Cause they were, like I say, they were going out of business and I picked up Detective 445 and I got it home and I read it. And like all these stories that I remembered from when I was a kid came flooding back to me. And there was a story in there called The Touchdown Trap, where Dick Grayson's away at college and something happens with like the football team or something. 
and he has to go into action as Robin, the teen wonder. And you know, Robin has always, you know, when I was a kid was always one of my favorite superheroes, but not like the traditional Robin. You might think of like little kid Robin, but more this Robin, the teen Robin. Cause of course this was the Robin that was in existence when I was a little kid, but particularly from that story. So, you know, I, I looked at that story and, and I went back and I reexamined it not long ago and, uh, and was looking at it and realized, hey, you know, this is Mike Grell. And this is one of the reasons I always loved this so much because I love Grell from this era. You know, Grell also worked on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And I was a huge fan of that. You know, Superboy is one of my favorite childhood heroes as well for much the same reason. He was drawn by Grell and I just love the way Grell drew Superboy. And then... Uh, when Mike and I started covering, uh, you know, started doing Tales of the JSA, one of the first books we did was All-Star number 58. And on the cover of All-Star 58, you have these young heroes charging into the scene, one of which was a star-spangled kid. You had Power Girl. That was her first appearance. And in the middle of them, you had the Earth 2 Robin, which the way he's drawn on that cover could easily pass for Robin the Teen Wonder even though it's the Earth 2 version. That cover, Mike Grell. So when I discovered Mike's Amazing World, you know, the, the website uh, that Mike Voiles puts together, and you know, one of the great features of that is that you can set up these different indexes. You know, you can you can look up, you know, like say a particular artist and and put like their run in an order so you can kind of see, okay, you know, what's the publishing order of their works. I did that with Mike Grell, actually on a completely different project. And as I'm looking down that list and I saw the touchdown trap listed, you know, that story with Robin, it got me to thinking, you know, I wonder if he ever did any other Robin stories because I love that one so much. And so I'm looking down the list and this one came up, um, Batman family number one with this story with Robin and Batgirl. So that's the entire reason I wanted to, to own this issue and wanted to read this issue was to get more of that fix, you know, from when I was a kid of just more of Teen Robin by Mike Grell. And so, you know, having read this, finally gotten my hands on it, even though just digitally, you know, it was to answer that question of, you know, was it worth it and everything? And I got to say, I'm I'm still going to be on the hunt for this because I love this. The story is flat wacky, but damn, I love the art in this. It's so nice. I just... I I can't verbalize it properly, but there's something about the way he draws Robin, but also his Batgirl is just va va boom. I yeah, she's uh, she's slinky, she's sexy. I, I really like the way that he draws this. Page seven, and, she's uh, got the push-up bra. Yeah, I uh, I, I like this a lot. I really like this a lot. It's go, oh, yeah, where she's running off the screen. Is that the one you're talking yeah, about? That's, that's, I need to get off that page. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's, she's got a Carmine Infantina Princess Leia boobs right there. That's what she's got going on. It, they are, they are gravity-defying. Yeah, they are. I, uh, I bought this one on the newsstand. Wow. Back in 1975. I, I have this. Uh, I, I mean, the story is flat-out goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, the artwork, I'm I'm not quite as enamored with it as you. Um, I like certain parts of it, and other parts I'm not so crazy about. I really didn't think this was Mike Grell at his best. Uh, I think well, this is early Grell for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the best sequence is at the bottom of, I guess it's page nine, 
where uh, Robin is swinging off the monuments, mm-hmm. catching up to Batgirl on on the Bat Cycle. I, I think that's that's a, a great three panel sequence right there. Um, some of the other things, some of the other faces just don't look quite right to me. And other, like I said, other parts look really good. Uh, so it, it's just again, it's a little inconsistent as far as I can. Uh, a little, but it's not radically inconsistent. You I'm don't sorry? feel it, it's, it's not radically inconsistent. It's not enough to jar you, but there are certain panels and pages that are sharper than others. Yeah, there's there's page there's panels and pages that I look at and think they look awesome, and then there's some that look just a little bit more, you know, just okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think it's radical inconsistency, but there is. There is some. I, I always think of Mike Rell as a uh, kindred spirit artistically to Neil Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I see it in some of the panels here, but other ones almost look like uh, I don't know, like they could have been in a in a Brave and the Bold book. I don't know. Um, look so on I'm, page seventeen. There's, that... there's two page numbers. There's one at the very bottom of the page in the center, and then there's one oh, at the right. bottom on the right, which is... <laughs> you're, you're right. I didn't even notice that before. All right. It'd be, going by the number on the bottom, it'd be page 21, the uh, the fourth panel right there. I think this speaks very much to Mike Grell's artistic style, and, and this would be his developing style at this time, because like I say, this is very early Mike Grell. But you've got, this is at the end of the story when Robin's being, frankly, he's being kind of a condescending dick and he's got his hand on her shoulder and, you know, he's just given her the advice of, you know, why don't you hang up the costume? And, you know, he says it at the, the panel before he says, why don't you hang up that costume and do whatever it is you're doing when you're not wearing it? And she's rolling her eyes in that panel. And then the next panel, he's got his hand on his shoulder. He's just been very condescending and look at her body language. Oh, she's doing the juicy <laughs> look. Yeah, she's very cutesy. She's got her hands together in front of her. She's got her leg crossed in front of the other. She's doing very much the, gosh, you're right, Robin. And I just love that. It, it Her body language totally says that, you know, everything she's thinking. And it uh, that is great. And then the next panel is the one where she, you know, she bends him over and gives him the big kiss and sends him away feeling foolish. But I just I love the body language. It totally sells it in, in that scene, and that's one of the reasons I really like him. He understood, you know, the the way people move and and body language and all. So I agree with you. I mean, there there are definitely there's some wonky bits in here. There's actually a couple of panels that I, I wasn't particularly crazy about. Um, the one where Robin does the midair flip and and kicks Arnold in the face back on page seven. His everything on that page looks really good, except Robin's actual face. He looks much, much older than uh, I mean, he doesn't look like Robin at all, really. He looks like an older man doing that. So it, it is a little inconsistent. But I, I like I always like when you get kind of a, a glimpse into the, the development of an artist that, you know, later in their career, you're, you're much more familiar with their more like refined and defined style. Mm-hmm. And he's not quite there yet at this point, but you can see the seeds of of you know what he would become. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. Now, I, I, would... I generally find, as a general rule, just talking Mike Mike Grell, I usually find that his facial renderings are almost always really, really solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one of his strengths as an artist. I also find you know page composition is usually very good. Uh, there's a couple of facial renderings here that I'm not crazy about. Uh, I'm looking at uh page what is it five 
the second panel of, of Dick, a little bit of Zipatone action on there, really just doesn't look quite right to me. Um, that second but, panel? Yeah. Oh, I like that one. That's one of my do? favorite okay. ones. I was yeah, thinking I like, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I like that one. That's that's fine. We're allowed to disagree. I think that's. I think it's very Neil. You know, you said it yourself. I think it's very Neil Adams esque right there. Uh, I I it, think he is. I, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but I I think he's kind of going for maybe not Neil Adams style, but maybe Neil Adams kind of like layout style as far as like panel design and that sort of thing. There's, there's you know, a the, couple with the, the, the page layout is is a little. Uh, a little different, and and I always like when they do that. I'm I'm looking at page sixteen, where he's got the one panel that kind of goes up the left side and then across the whole top, and then f- four more panels kind of encased in that. Right. I, I like that, especially the layout with with Benedict Arnold up at the upper right, and and the two of them doing their uh, their acrobatics on the full length pit panel. I think there's some cool stuff there. But then when when, uh, when Satan basically reveals himself, the first panel where you see his whole body, it almost looks like he had to play with the proportions a little bit just so that he could get him to fit in the, in the panel and still have room for a word balloon. Yeah. So that page is kind of laid out a little bit poorly, I think, because he should have made more room for that panel. Uh, you know, it, it, it's one of these things where, where you know, Mike Rell at his worst is still really good. And mm-hmm. this isn't Mike Rell at his worst. This is Mike Rell, you know, he's okay. Uh, I mean, I like it. It, it, it. Again, it's silver agey. It's very silly. You know, Benedict Arnold selling his soul to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it's fun, you know, the whole relationship. I think in particular his facial renderings of Barbara Gordon in this really are solid. There's a few of them where you look at them and, and he, he really did a nice job with them. Jeez, I, I just... You know, she's gorgeous. She looks really great as Barbara, but when she changes to Batgirl and she has that the you know, completely form fitting uniform, she's just she's just flat sexy. I mean, she looks really good, sexy and, uh, and in I like Yvonne that. Craig kind of way. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I just I've always thought that uh, that Grell drew beautiful women anyway, but here he gets to show off. And he does. He, you know, it, it works really, really well. I like this. I think, I think I'm just looking at the overall book. I'm paging back and forth through it. And I think a lot of Grell's work looks best when he does have close-ups. And, and a lot of the long shots almost look like he's wasting the space. Yeah, but then you have something like page, it's bottom number, page 18, where you have this big expanse of space, Satan standing in the middle. Batman and Batgirl are fighting. There's this great wide expanse, and it looks, it looks like it's intended to be like that. It's very artistic because mm-hmm. you're talking about spirits and and spirit of uh, the USA. It, it, I think that could be looked at as wasted space. I think it looks sharp. I think it looks cool. The minimalism because it focuses on the right element. You're talking about the bottom right panel. Yeah, I right. like that one a lot actually. Yeah. Uh, the shot at the top left of it, Benedict Arnold looks fat. <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but uh, he's he's a portly man. He's the, he, he's the comic book Benedict Arnold shouldn't be. Oh, true. <laughs> Maybe in real life he was, but but it's like you just got angry. It's like he, Benedict Arnold looks fat. I don't know. It just seems like you know, to, if he's a guy who's going to be fighting Robin and Batgirl in battle, he should look more fit. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, but he's using like supernatural powers and stuff. It's it's not like necessarily his prowess. So you know, I just noticed. Look at how he's holding the sword that Robin is striking 
in that first panel, and you don't Which you don't page? hold a sword like that on page eighteen, that very first panel. Yeah, yeah, that is not how you hold. I didn't even notice that before. That's rather awkward. But no, I you know I'm I'm un, unapologetic in my love for this. I, I just I, I really am enamored of it. I mean, I, I I will profess that there are some some wonky bits. There's some perspectives that are odd. There's uh, a couple of times there's a little bit of anatomy that's odd. But overall, I, I think the the dynamism of it wins out. I, I love his uh, his Robin, but I, you know his Batgirl looks really solid too. I, the action scenes just sell it for me, and it and it kind of outweighs any of the other shortcomings that it may have. To to, uh, wondering... to point out one that contradicts what I said earlier, uh, on the, on the I guess page twenty four. I really like kind of the way it almost looks like a photo-referenced photo, even though I don't think it is. Or a, a fo- it almost looks like a Photoshop window box photo uh, of, of the, the floor of Congress from a long shot. I think that's and a it, photo. I, 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 don't, really... I don't think it is. No? It does, it does have the feel of it, but I don't think it is. I think that's actually sitting down and measuring it out and everything. And it, I don't know. It just look, kind of looks cool in the middle of the page there. And above, Barbara's got her push-up bra on again. Yep. Yes, she does. Hello, Tor- girls. Torpedoes aft. <laughs> you know, it would be a long time before Robin, and, and it wouldn't even be this version of Robin, but it'd be a long time before Robin got a solo title. I'm wondering if Grell could have actually carried a a Robin either book or or feature. Because this uh, this Batgirl and Robin feature lasted for a long time in Batman Family, but I don't know that he actually ever did any more of them. I believe it was another artist. Well, I think Beyond Batman Family point, listed twenty issues. Twenty I think. issues, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Batgirl and and Robin was not in all of them. It was in a lot of the early ones. But I don't. I can't remember who did those features after this. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, it's not Grell, but I don't remember who the actual artist was on those. I know on several of the covers, the cover artist was Apero, but I don't think he did any of the interiors. Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember. I think it was somebody fairly pedestrian, as I recall, but I I just can't remember who it was. Probably like Irv Norvik or somebody like that. I don't remember. Um. Well, you want to do grades on this one? Yep. Mm-hmm. So since the cover is about this story, um, I will grade the the image of the the story uh, included in this as well. Um, I love it. I love it. This is why I wanted to read this story because of that leaping image of Robin by Grell is almost identical to the image that had been in my head for so many years when I was a kid, because in the touchdown trap in detective 445, he leaps much the same way out onto the football field when he changes to Robin in that story. So it's, it's just quintessential Grell, but quintessential, you know, Robin by Grell. And I, I just love that. Batgirl looks a little bit awkward in this. Um, and then I, I really did think that that was George Washington. I didn't, I did not expect that it would be uh, Benedict Arnold returned from hell. I, <laughs> you know, was, the thing I got to thinking about with this story is that, you know, when, when the story first starts, 
I, I think there's a natural tendency to think that this is just some nut, you know, some nut that thinks he's Benedict Arnold or he's play acting that he's Benedict Arnold. But at the end of the story, no, 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 this is really Benedict Arnold. Well, isn't <laughs> isn't there an estate for him? I mean, I realize the guy's been dead 200 years, but, you know, much like a, an actor would have or a writer or something would have an estate. Does Benedict Arnold not have an estate, you know, where there's like survivors and and you know, distant relatives that, that could potentially write up DC and go, what the hell? My, my ancestors in hell. What's that shit all about? You know, you get for selling out the country. Yeah. (laughs) I guess, but you know, I mean, essentially this comes down to slander, doesn't it? Separation of church and state. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell does that have to do? Can you prove Benedict Arnold is in hell? Can you prove he's not in hell? You can oh. prove he's not in hell. That'd be the thing, yeah. You want to sue me for it? Prove that I'm wrong. <laughs> it's it's like it's like a dumbass version of Inherit the Wind. <laughs> Just waiting to happen. <laughs> so let's see here. Um, the cover. Um I mean, I like it. I, you know, the Grell part of it works. So, you know, I just noticed that the Batgirl and Robin at the top of the page are, are, are Grell as well. Now, I don't know who the hell drew Batman here. That is not Grell. I, I don't know who that is. Maybe Carmen Infantino. And it makes me laugh. You look at the bottom of it. You know, this is issue one. And at the bottom, it says, meet the Batman family. You've got Alfred and Commissioner Gordon. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's what the kids want to read right there. A couple <laughs> of couple old farts. That's, that's <laughs> why they're at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Man Bat, yeah, Man Bat's cool. And the Man Bat story that's in here, I think, is a reprint, but it's by uh, by Neil Adams. So, you know, you can't go wrong there. Um, cover base just on the Grell picture, I would give like a solid like uh, B, B minus, I guess, because it could be a little bit sharper. It could be a little bit better, but I like it a lot. Cover as a total would go down a bit because there's a lot of wasted space and the, because it's so many different artists contributing to the overall image, it's a little disjointed. I don't know if I would have noticed that as a kid though, but definitely I notice it now that everybody's by a different artist. So I don't know. I'd probably still stick with like a B minus though. It's, it's not horrible. It does. It does the job makes me want to pick it up and thumb through it. Um, art on the interior. God, it's so hard to be objective about this because I just love this stuff so much. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with the same. I'll go with like a B minus because there's definitely room for improvement. I mean, I, I will not pretend that this is like, you know, this is the best Mike Grell ever. No, it's not. I mean, this is early Mike Grell. And, and, and so you can see that there is definitely room for improvement. And there's there are bits of it that look rather amateurish at the same time looking very dynamic. Uh, it reminds me a lot of whenever I go back and I, I look at early burn is much the same way. You know, I look at, I, I would compare this to, you know, this, this is to Mike Grell, what like say space 1999 is to John Byrne, for example, you can see the seeds of greatness, but it's some rough stuff. Uh, and then the story, the story would have to grade on two levels. You know, the story on like a like a story level, it's stupid as hell. But on a fun level, I it's just a riot. You've got Benedict Arnold returned from hell, wielding a flaming lightsaber and riding a, a purple My Little Pony. I don't know what the <laughs> hell Elliot Megan was on when he wrote this, but I had a yeah, I just had a hell of a fun time reading it. I mean, it's it's fun. 
And I mean, essentially, Old Scratch looks to me like kind of a suaver version of uh, Funky Flashman or something. So I got a kick out of it when when they turn up in in the House of Representatives there for the first time, and you've got you've got Benedict Arnold addressing the House and Funky Flashman standing next to him. I'm like, this goddamn story just gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> so I I got a kick out of it. I would give it a uh I don't know. We'll just we'll go with B's all around on this one. I I, I would say it's a it's a pretty B uh B story for the most part. Room for improvement, but I I enjoyed it. God, I got a kick out of this. I got to find me a cheap copy of this somewhere. Right. See, I, I kind of lean almost exactly the same way Scott did, because I remember seeing this cover in ads in old comics and, and being stricken by the way Robin looked in Batgirl, because I've always been a mark for the Batgirl costume. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, room for improvement, but I think the cover, that the way the cape moves and, and the pose itself just sells it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go bees across the board because this was a ton of fun. Like it just as it got weirder, I'm like, oh god, what can come next? <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I, I'm not going to really disagree with you guys, uh, although you you may have thought I was going to. Uh, by the way, the the Batman on the cover is Nick Cardi. Really? Cardi, of course. Yeah. Okay. Now that you say that, I I see that. But yeah, I I I like the cover a lot. I think I like the cover more than I should. I I look at it and it's it reminds me of like those collections you know like the Blue Ribbon Digest mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. and 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 just just I don't know it has this old timey feel to it for me that is just very very nostalgic uh, and then top that off with a good Mike Rell cover inset inside the overall cover mm-hmm. uh, it it's it's solid it's not an iconic cover I can't give it an A uh, but I'm gonna say solid B I I, I really like the cover. Uh, and, and it's one that I always, you know, I picked it up on the newsstand and I've always kind of, every time I see it, it, it just, it brings a smile to my face. I just enjoy it. Uh, the interior art, again, not Mike Grell's best. I think Mike Grell at his best is probably on, uh, either like Longbow Hunters or on Warlord or something along those lines. It's probably the best Mike Grell. Uh, the, but the best Mike Grell gets an A. Uh, this is not the best, but this is not bad either. So I'm going to say again, I'm going to go with you guys on, on a B. And the story is just, you know, 1975 DC Silver Age. Um, I, it, it's fun. It's stupid. It makes no <laughs> sense. Uh, C plus. <laughs> and, and overall, you know, I'm, I'm going to discount the fact that it only got a C plus on the story and just give it an overall B as well. While we- uh, while I, I have really no use whatsoever for Green Arrow, I, I would tend to agree with you that uh, Grell's best, from what I've seen, it's going to come down to either Longbow Hunters or he did a James Bond book for I want to say it was Eclipse Comics. I could be wrong, but it was for a, it was for an indie company, and it was a three I think three issue prestige format. It stands out in my memory because, for one, oh, it's it's wow. Grell and it's gorgeous, but also it was late as hell when that came out. And I don't know if it was him or the publisher, but somewhere in the process there was a, a real problem with getting that damn book out. And I remember there was a serious lag between the first two issues, and then the lag between two and three was so long that um, 
I want to say I didn't even get that when it came when it finally came out. I ended up picking it up in like a back issue. I want to say it was like over a year late. I could be wrong about that, but I know it was a crazy long time. But anyway, it was a it was a Bond story by Grell, and the common denominator between both those stories is they both had nudity, you know, female nudity in them by Grell. And anytime he actually gets to draw one of his be- you know his beautiful women nude is just that much more of a bonus because he does it very well, you know? But uh, yeah, that was some really good stuff. He really got to show off on both of those books, I thought. And the prestige format, format, uh, the prestige book format really, uh, you know, he suited that format. It really worked well for him and really brought out his art. So, because there's some artists where you, you get the bitter, you know, the better printing process or the better art style or, or, or you know, printing style or whatever, and it doesn't necessarily complement them. No, some of it highlights the, the, the weaknesses in their ability. Exactly. But with him, it actually complemented his work and it, made, it just made it look that much better. It really suited his, uh, his particular art style, um, particularly the, uh, the longbow hunters, I thought. So, yeah, but. I, 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 man, I just, he really is one of my, my favorites. And, uh, I often wonder if he's one of those guys that could potentially be on the underappreciated list. Cause I know that there are plenty of guys say like around our age that totally appreciate him and all, but these days, you know, with, with, you know, newer comics fans, I wonder if they even know who he is. And, uh, so I, I wonder how how known and how appreciated he is these days. But I, I just I've always thought he was a hell of an artist. I really like his stuff. Okay, the uh, James Bond series I just punched it up. It's called Permission to Die. Permission to Die. That was it. Yeah. Was that an Eclipse? Uh, yes. Yeah. And it was from nineteen three issues that that ranged from nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety one. Yes, that was right. Yeah. Because I want to say that there was, you know, the first issue came out and then the second issue was like a little late. And then the, the last issue was like over a year late. It was it, it was crazy. It took forever to come out. Well, that's that's like uh, Camelot 3000 and what killed that yeah. series for me. They came out the first 11 issues and then it took a full year for them to come out the 12th issue. It's ridiculous. But the art I can see sharp. that with it. Oh, it, it's good. Yeah, that was a really, really good one. Because there's a, a really the, the thing with that was that they couldn't. They couldn't like visually. They could not um, reflect the films, so they couldn't really use material from the films. But the the feel, at least what I got, I've never read any of the behind the scenes stuff with the series or anything. But the feel I got was that they were going more for movie Bond than than novel Bond. So there was a really great panel. I think it's in the first issue where right after Bond beds this woman, he gets up in the middle of the night and he's having his kind of like quiet, reflective moment. And there's this this image of him like standing in the moonlight, looking out the window. And in his mind's eye, he's kind of reflecting on all of his adventures. And all of the adventures are snippets from the film series, yet they couldn't use it. You know, they couldn't use the actual images of that. So it's like Grell's interpretation of those moments without just, you know, copying them as they looked on screen, if you know what I mean. So it was very creative in how he let you know exactly, you know, you could tell exactly what it was supposed to be without it being a true representation of how it looked on screen. And I think, you know, that's a hell of a feat to pull off. I'm I'm looking at, I just punched up some of the artwork for it. And it looks to me like, I guess he couldn't do one particular bond for whatever reason. Either he was forbidden from it or they didn't want to 
tie it into one particular era of Bond or something. But it right. looks to me like he took Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton and took mm-hmm. features from the both of them and mashed them. Yep. That was one of the reasons I liked it so much as I thought that his Bond did look a lot like uh, like Dalton's Bond, who I've always liked a lot. But he's he's got some Sean Connery in there as well. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was. It was a much grittier. Well, he was a much leaner Bond for one thing, but he was a much grittier Bond too. He was. Uh, it was almost kind of having like the 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 Daniel Craig Bond, but you know, well before Daniel Craig, because he was a little bit more of a of a just ruthless bastard that we never really saw in the films until Daniel Craig, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. Well, they they didn't take him. They, you know, the the at least Casino Royale, they got much more serious with Bond. Right. So they would, you know, it gave them the opportunity to show him as a ruthless bastard. But there's some moments with the, I, I, I remember uh, scenes with Roger Moore, who who may have at times been the silliest Bond, uh, where he had ruthless scenes. And and right. if, you, if you go back to our Bond retrospective that we did, it's got to be two years ago at least. Uh, there's there's a lot of moments in that that we pointed out about you know where where he would basically you know ruthlessly kill somebody in in certain scenes uh where where he could just turn around and walk away so there were moments but again this is not the james bond telecast it does make me want to dig both those out though the the bond one and the um the longbow hunters and look at them again i haven't read either one of those in a long time i don't have the bond ones but i do have the uh you know the the longbow hunter and graphic novel Mm -hmm. I i might pull that one out I was actually thinking the same thing. So, <laughs> but are we are we not going to talk about the hostess ad? Oh, you mean where uh, where B. Arthur gets foiled by Captain <laughs> yeah. Marvel? Yeah, it Minerva. <laughs> that yes. happened. Captain Marvel's actually in one B. panel. <laughs> she looks exactly like B. Arthur. <laughs> if I could time travel and, and make a live action Shazam movie from the seventies, B. Arthur's Aunt Minerva for sure. <laughs> I've had to explain to younger collectors, like, you don't forsake your bills on, to get your comics. Oh, absolutely. That, this is entertainment that'll still be there when you're done. The other thing, and, I, and I've grown much more strong in the opinion as, as I've gotten older, and it really started out talking about, like, collectibles, action figures and the like. You know, when, when, when the craze started with, you know, I'm buying this, but I got to keep it mint in the box. And unless it's, like, a really, really nice box to put on display... Mm-hmm. which is a rarity. Uh, I think that's kind of just one of the stupidest attitudes. And I, I, I say that not knowing if you actually do anything like no, that. No, I take everything out of the box. I mean, it's for display, but I want it out of the box. I want to at least touch it. And if they have weapons or accessories, I want to put them in their hand, what have you. Yeah, ex- exactly. Because my my thought process on, like I said, it started with col- with collectibles, but it's expanded onto comics and other stuff too, is buy it because you like it. Don't buy it because you're making an investment. Because if you're buying it to make an investment, you're probably going to lose money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I've nobody... been giving away my... I mean, anything I'm getting currently on my pull list, I give away the physical and just keep the digital. Oh, really? So I read it once in physical form, just because you have that experience. It's, it is an experience in itself. And then I'm like, here, take these, read them. I have them digitally backed up. Because after that, what do we do? Put them in a bag and board and put them in a long box? Yeah, and, and, and I've taken more – I've gotten back into that just a little bit. I totally killed the collector's bug, but it's like we're addicts. Yeah. You know, we're you're always never fully back. recovered. Well, I just – I've started getting into more uh, hardcovers and omnibuses. 
even they start to take up a lot of space, and then you start saying, oh, geez, what am I going to do with all of these? But uh, this year at New York Comic Con, uh, when I was hanging out with Dave Pascarella and Dario Gonzalez, uh, we hit a 50-cent booth, and I bought, you know, I don't know, 20 bucks worth of shit there. And then not that long ago, they had the 25-cent sale at my LCS that I bought 150 books at. <laughs> and, and it's like it, it's, it's, it's reawakened that, that addiction to hard copies of things. Well, I still like them. I just, yeah, I mean, like you said, the hardcovers start taking up space, but it's it's lugging a long box is what I don't want to do. If I ever move from here, and which we should, it's still a rental, but I don't want to lug long boxes around anymore. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I've I don't have I don't have uh, you know the 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 boxes that are made for comics. Mm. I actually have boxes I've taken from work. You know, they have the the Keurig machine. Yeah. And then they buy the the supply of coffee, and they have the boxes which are. Width-wise, very good for collecting comics, and lengthwise, they're like just about the size of a short box. Okay, so you actually don't have that dead weight. Exactly. It's it's not. And and I have I had bought the uh, the steel shelves, which are like a perfect height for storing the boxes on. So I don't have them piled on top of each other. And if I want to get out of box, I can get out of box without any real difficulty. Yeah. And I'm actually soon going to be because I have to reorganize my comics. I jacked up my whole organization process because. What I did is I had a, a run of Amazing Spider-Man from 248 to 400. Mm-hmm. That I, I most of it I bought from Bailey, from Michael Bailey, and uh, my local LCS, which is redundant. My LCS had the Seinfeld Superman statue, so I ended up trading in the ASM run for the statue. Long story short, the way sh- everything shifted around, I don't know where anything is at the moment. Yeah, I, I've I've over the years I kind of had lost touch with where everything was. Now I've gotten it to the point. I, on those boxes that I have, I think I have. I think it's 60 of them like 60 short boxes effectively Ooh. um and and i've i've gotten to the point where i've organized that i know generally what's in each box you know my submariner books are in this one my daredevil books are in this one that kind of thing uh but now i'm starting to go through them to actually list which issues are in them mm-hmm. you know and and then have a master list on it and this way I'm, I'm figuring the next time i go to like a 25 cent sale i can actually look to fill some holes you know where they actually exist as opposed to just buying stuff that looks interesting well the cool thing is now with smartphones you can actually upload an excel document to like google drive so if you're out and about you can pull it down and actually go through your list the problem with the excel program because that's why i was asking you about it yesterday is i don't want to do it listing each individual book because it'll just be insane so i want what i wanted to do is like put you know in box number one i have amazing spider-man and these are the issues that are in there and the Excel document doesn't really give me enough room to list all the individual issues. And that's even with putting when there's consecutive runs where I have, say, issue 50 to 75 consecutively and just putting 50-75. I still yeah. run out of space on the line on the Excel document. And that'll, that'll – well, you can expand that. You can go up to the top of column width. If you click the top of it, it'll ask column width. You can expand that and then – Yeah. No, I, I did that. I, I did make the column width. But then – if you start like going on to a second line, oh, okay, then it, it it just it kind of like disappears into it unless you click on that line. Yeah, you click on the line, and if you actually scroll it down, it'll expand. But you can also do. But I don't think it expands when you print it. Oh, good point. If you're going paper, because I want. I, I just kept mine on 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 this on the computer, and I did. I did just list every issue I have, so I can easily reference it, and then I just cut and paste the title, so the data will will be you know the same all the way through. And if I'm listing it the way I'm doing it, it's almost easier just doing it in a simple Word document. Yeah. 
the, the, you know, the, the bad part is you lose the flexibility of, you know, of doing a search or whatever. Yeah, you lose the control F. Or if you have a lot of time and you can get into the position like Scott's in where you have a scan of every co- cover, that would be awesome. Right, I'd Scott? Yeah, how, how I did a lot of that. I mean, a lot of them I did myself, but a lot of them I just stole from the scans I'd already downloaded as well. So, I mean, if it was a decent scan, uh, you know, a decent cover scan from the thousands I already had, then I'd just use that. So, it, it was it was probably, I don't know, I'd say like 70, 30, you know, 70% scans from downloaded comics and then 30% of where I had to do my own either because I didn't have the issue digitally or I wasn't happy with the scan that was with that book. Well, another, another option like for you where I get most of the covers that I use on the, uh, the episode artwork uh, uh-huh. is coverbrowser.com. I don't even know about that one. I wonder if that was even in existence when I uh, when I was doing that project. It's been around for at least a few years. I, I don't hmm. know when it started, but it's it's a good a good source of a lot of covers. They have they'll have like an entire run of a series, you know, of a lot of different series for that matter. Ooh, that's not hmm. bad. Those are good scans, actually. Oh, did you just open it? Yeah, and they're actually pretty well. They're high res. What is it again? Cover coverbrowser dot com. Cover browser. See what I'm doing with most of my my key art now is actually if i have it on marvel digital unlimited since that's basically done for high definition i just cover i just do a screenshot of that and then upload it mm-hmm. those are nice they have a few here and there that i don't like that shows yeah, them in they, cgc yeah, yeah some, some, of them, some of them have them in the in the in the, the sealed containers some of them some of them they're just real old you know scratchy copies and i guess you know good luck finding one in better condition on that right yeah, some of them we look were, like they could stand to be a little bit higher res, but for the most part, they're pretty good. That's like I said, for the most part, I would say about 75% of the covers that I use on the episode artwork come from there. <laughs> Tales of Suspense number 15. Behold, Goom! <laughs> Gotta love Goom. Hey, guys, goom. it's Goom! He looks freaking ridiculous. That's what makes him a great character. If he was any less ridiculous, it would be forgettable. But the ridiculousness of how he looks is what made it so much fun to cover that book. Having never read any of these, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Tales of Suspense looks like it was shit until Iron Man came along. Can't say you're necessarily wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Just strictly judging a, a book by its cover. Well, more often than not, on, on old books, you know, on, on old books, actually, a lot, a lot of times, the interior content does not live up to the cover. Right. I would say on on old books, you know, from the early Silver Age going back to the Golden Age, uh, more often than not, the cover the cover exceeded the book more than the other way around. So, Dave, back to podcasting. What's up with that? <laughs> I you couldn't I got stay restless. away talking about that addiction. It uh, yeah, it, it it was I was I was happy for the first month because I was getting everything done I wanted to, and then at that point I caught up with everything and I got bored. I couldn't sleep, couldn't figure out what to do with myself. So on a lark one night, I'm like, I'm just gonna write up an episode just to see how it feels. After that, I went to sleep Look like an good. angel. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna start putting some episodes in the can, and then if I get enough, I'll start releasing them and and come back. I have a request. Yes. I started buying Daredevil at issue 109. I have a soft spot for that whole Black Spectre saga. I'm going to request that you cover that, cover that at some point. It may be on the agenda already, so... Cool. 
Very It'll be cool. a little bit down the line because what I do is I do just pick here and there issues, but I try to put them in chronological order to some extent. Well, the way I'm looking at it, you know, from my perspective, is I love the Frank Miller stuff, and I thought you did a real nice job with what you covered on that. But I've heard other people talk about those. Yeah. I enjoy it more when you talk about things that I haven't heard other people talk about, like when you did the Submariner issue a couple of weeks ago. That was loved. a funny, fun episode. Yeah. I love that. And I I'm, kind of, I'm enjoying the FF one. That was the secret, because when the last time I was here, I was like, the magic's gone. I don't think I'm coming back. And that was the secret was, let's try going back to this older stuff. And that was when it just sort of, that's when the muse hit. Now, there's also, a, uh, there's the related run with Dad, with Dr. Doom where he switches bodies with them, which is pretty cool. I'm not doing that one because it was um, Andy and Steven covered that one. Yeah. They had a big screw, special. Screw so. Andy and Steven. <laughs> I figured they covered everything I, I, I would want to say on that. So You cover what you want to cover. You know what? I, I've actually I, – I, I don't mean screw Andy and Steve in reality, but I've come <laughs> to the conclusion that when I pick a book now, I don't really worry too much about if other people have covered it because so many – there's so many podcasts out there where they're covering so many books. If I start crossing everything off the list because somebody else read it, you know, yeah. then I, I lose my own randomness then. Except for Marvel Star Wars. Well, I try not to do books with you <laughs> that you're covering elsewhere. I actually thought about picking some Star Wars, but the only thing in my humble bundle, the only thing I have was their trades. So, right. But, but if if I were doing an episode with say Dave and Bill, I might pick a Marvel Star Wars book because maybe we have a different percept, uh, you know, perception of it than you did. I wouldn't do it with you because you've already covered it. You don't need to cover it a second time. You know what I mean? Maybe Does that make I sense? do. <laughs> <laughs> that episode sure. got a lot of response. Which one? The growing up Star Wars with when you talked about Marvel Star Wars. Yeah. I kind of agree yeah, with your, your perception on that one. I, I uh, you know, you talked about it in the episode we recorded last week, and then I listened to the growing up Star Wars episode, and then I read Star Wars number one. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you're pretty much on the money on this one. The only thing I didn't agree with, most of what you were saying was true. And I'm like, yep, yeah, he's right. He's preaching the gospel. The only thing that didn't bother me was having the, you know, the vehicles there because they would exist in that universe. See, I, I read today, I sat down, I, I caught up on uh, on new comics, and I read uh, Star Trek, Planet of the Apes. Paul, are you reading that? I read the first one. I haven't gotten the second one yet. Oh, the second one is f awesome, man. The second one is everything we were hoping the series was going to be. Let me just put it that well, way. Once I don't we finish it, we're going to do, uh, we're gonna, you and yes. I are going to do an episode of Binge. Yes, we are. Right? Yes, most definitely, because I'm dying to talk about it. Because I'm going to be pissed if you cover it on Star Trek Monthly Monday, and then I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs. I thought about it, and then I thought, no, because I want to give it, I want to give it fair treatment for both franchises. So I think the only way to do it is to do it in an impartial forum where it's not Star Trek or Planet of the apes it's both and, that's us uh, but no this the the second issue is because the first issue left me kind of cold a little slow a little yeah it was it was a little slow it was a little decompressed and there was there wasn't any apes in it you know i mean as far as like Taylor, because to me planet of the apes is taylor you know or, or yeah. zira and cornelius and neither one of them were really in it much at all. And so I was kind of left cold by it. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this. And then the second issue was like, holy shit, this is awesome. I, so my, it was really good. Was, the second issue was going to be the reverse. It was going to be all apes and no Star Trek. Oh, yeah, I kind of wondered about that because I think that's how they did it with the Doctor Who crossover that Star Trek had where like the first issue was one franchise, the other, the next issue was the other franchise and then finally they met or something. I, I started reading it and then I realized, 
I don't know enough shit about Doctor Who. I couldn't follow it, so I was fine. Like, ah, screw it. I don't need to read this. Um, but anyway, uh, I'll, I'll be really curious once you've read it what you think, because I, I think it's off to a really good start. Um, and I read Star Wars, um, Darth Vader, because Scott Riefen kept pestering me about it, saying how awesome it was. So I read that, and he's right. And it, it was, was. really, really, <laughs> yeah. it was really, really good. And then I read Star Wars number two. And I'm going through it, and I'm like, damn, this is actually really good. And I'm really enjoying it, really enjoying it, really enjoying it. And it gets to just about the end of the, the story. And I don't know if either of you guys have read it, so I don't want to spoil it. But Luke then does something that was exactly what I bitched about in the first issue with stealing something from much later in the saga. And I'm like, god damn it. I and it just ruined it for me. I was, thought of you when I got to yeah, that scene. I was like, son of a... Because I was really liking it up. And, and I, I kept thinking, all right, this, you know, now that I've kind of got my bitches out of the way with this, with the first issue, okay, maybe I can just sit back and just go along for the dumb ride and have fun. And I was until Luke did what he did. And then I was like, it was just like, God, shit, you know? And let it kind of, it didn't something. ruin the issue for me, but I was it just, it kind of pissed me off. I'm like, damn it. Because you were talking about Comics Monthly Monday, you were talking about the original Marvel Star Wars, mm -hmm. and a lot of what you were talking about, by the way, I was totally on board with a lot of the things you said, but you were talking about they didn't know what was coming. They right. didn't have that benefit, but this series does. Right. So are they using something in their toolbox, or are they, and I'll admit, I think I think Aaron is sometimes showing off a bit, trying too hard, yes. Yeah. where, who was it that wrote, I have it right over there, who wrote Darth Vader? Was that, that Kieran, was Kieran Gillen? Yeah. Gillen seems to have it down. He's got it organically. We're throwing this yes. stuff in, but it flows correctly. Mm -hmm. It's not, hey, look at me. Well, exactly. by the next time we speak, I'll have read Star Trek Planet of the Apes, Darth Vader, and Star Wars number two. So I'll be able to give you my opinions on them. <laughs> Darth Vader was, was exactly what I wanted. And I kind of wish they had gone with a single series that was anthology because the, the timing of the, of the issues coming out is thrown off a little bit. Yeah, it is, because Vader um, sounds like the, the first arc in Marvel Star Wars is already done, you know, mm -hmm. by the thing he says about, you know, the moon and all that. And I'm like, well, that didn't happen in the second issue. So clearly this is in the future. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't I didn't care. I mean, it didn't it didn't annoy me, but it was just one of those things I noted in that kind of like, oh, OK, you know, can't you sync these up properly kind of way, you know, I would have kind of liked to see their first uh salvo be after Re return of the jedi yeah that's what i said i i don't understand why they picked it up where they picked it up they know where I, they're going with the next movie you could you can do in between the two movies without giving any spoilers but kind oh, of set up the they got movie. 30 years to to play with there i mean because i mean you know god bless scott rifen but i don't agree with him he said well you know the the era where they are it's the most fertile ground and you know, it's what the people want. And I'm thinking, I don't think so, because most everybody I've talked to has said the same thing I said was we've covered this ground thoroughly. Really setting it here again. And they it, just, it they just like covered a it there. Setback. In, they just covered it there in the uh, the, the Brian Wood series that. Just yeah, ended. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think I, I you know, I think they were almost obligated if, if they were going to scrap the EU to start post Return of the Jedi. If you're going to. Throw out everything that was there, then okay, throw it out and, and do it better. Do it again. Well, well you and, know what might be a good idea? You know what might have been fun? If you could start laying some groundwork for episode seven while you're showing episode six through a new, a new perspective or something. Ooh. 
You know what I'm not saying? Not quite Tag or Bink, but somebody yeah, almost, who was around well, like the an, battle. A non-comedy version of Tag and Bink, and you could kind of start setting up your big bad for 30 years from now. Yeah. I'm I don't know. Sure I don't know that if that makes as sense we get closer like, to the movie, we, we probably will get something like that, I would think. But, yeah, I was... I would like to have seen that right out of the shoot. Yeah, me too. I, I'm very surprised that they started where they started. Because starting where they started, you know, with that being such... Not only well covered ground, but it was covered well, if you know what I mean. I mean, between the original Marvel Star Wars, some of the books like, you know, Splendor the Mind's Eye. And then I thought that between uh, Dark Horse's Empire series and then what was the sequel to that called? I can't remember because there was Empire that ran, you know, however many issues it ran. And then it switched over and it had a different title. It wasn't Rebels, but I can't remember what the name of it was. I'm not sure. But between the two of those, I mean, it pretty thoroughly covered the ground between Star Wars and Empire. And it was phenomenal. I mean, some of the stories in there were really, really good. You know, that's where you got the story where uh, where um, it's revealed that the Imperial officer that you come to really like is actually Luke's childhood friend Tag. Or not Tag, um, <laughs> Tank, rather. <laughs> And they end up at odds with each other at one point because, you know, Luke's on this covert mission to this, you know, Imperial something or other. And at one point he comes around a corner or something and runs smack into into Tank. And at first it's like, oh, my God, Luke, you know, Tank. And they're all you know chummy. And then suddenly they take a step back and they look at each other and like, "Ooh, you're an Imperial. Oh, you're a rebel. And then they realize, oh, shit, we're on opposite sides. It's like out of a Mel Brooks movie. It was yes. uh, it was really good though. I mean, very well done, and uh, and that's the the switchover point where it became the other. But damn, I can't remember what the name of the other series was. I'm looking to see if I can find it in my database here. I just can't remember what it was called. Um, that's weird. Why am I not seeing it? Because you had Star Wars, it's Star Wars Empire. What the hell was the name of the other series? Wasn't it, it wasn't it wasn't dark times? That's something different. No. Um, dark Empire. No. Here we go. No, I don't think it even had a rebellion. That was the name of it. Rebellion, because I was like, I it had something to do with rebels, but I knew it wasn't rebels. Rebellion was the name of it. That was it. And that one ran not as long as because Emp- Empire ran. Oh God, how many issues did that run? Star Wars Empire ran like 40-something issues, I think. I'm going to be truncating the shit out of this. 40, 50 issues, something (laughs) like that. But Rebellion ran 40 40 issues. Was it 40 issues? Yeah. Yeah. Rebellion, I think, I don't even think it made it to 20. I think it was shy of 20 issues. But between the two series, um, pretty much filled in that entire gap from you know the destruction of the Death Star right up to like Empire, and it was really good, really really good stuff, really solid. Yes, truncate. had a lot of character development. <laughs> Paul was mentioning truncate. That's been the greatest tool anybody's ever shown me. Yeah, that's <laughs> editing time in half. Between that and uh, remove remove noise, gold, gold, Jerry, gold. Because <laughs> all I do is take about a thirty second. You know, 30 seconds where I just don't talk at the beginning of the recording. Especially right. if you're doing a solo. Yeah, exactly. And I run the noise removal, and then I run truncate silence. Half my work is done. <laughs> well, this is this is the only show that I do that I edit. And I still feel sometimes like I'm biting off more than I should. 
Like you know, editing to, is is about it's 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 a half of the podcasting. Because you, I mean, about one fourth is your research and your your notes. Another fourth would be recording. But yeah, the editing is the the big heavy load. Yeah, and and the, and the recording is is the the true fun part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy editing. It's not that I don't enjoy the research. But the you know, the the recording is where where I get you know the most kicks out of it. So that's where like listen to the profits turns out to be good. You know, my 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 research is watching the episodes. And then we, we record, and then I say, you know, okay, great. Uh, let me know when you got that edited. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> it's just those are the, those, yeah, those are the fun ones where you just show up, talk a little bit, and you're done. Speaking of which, you guys get to do that on this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, what are you doing editing wise now nowadays, Scott? Are you uh, are you getting somebody else on everything, or are you editing any of them? Oh regularly? God, no! I, I yeah, no. <laughs> as much as I can, but no, I. I uh, do growing up Star Wars, and I do um, earning my ears. Now I got to and... tell you, earning my he- my ears. It sounds to me, from when I listen to it, like you've been paying extra extra attention to that one, trying to make it sound more professional. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that one. I'll, I'll be honest. That's the one that gets my full and undivided attention when uh, when it comes to the editing because. There are so many other Disney shows out there. I'm very purposely trying to make it sound like none of the others. So, you know, I, I want to ha- it to have its own unique sound. Plus, it gives me a chance to show off because, you know, I, I have, you know, I have a massive Disney sound file collection as far as, you know, parks music and sound effects and um, recordings and all that sort of thing. So it gives me a chance to play. That's, that's where I can really, you know, unleash my super, you know, nerdy side, you know, sound editing wise and really go crazy. So I, I like, you know, doing that one a lot. Um, up until very recently I was doing, um, comics monthly Monday and then, um, out of the blue really. No, I, I had done that one up, uh, pretty much, you know, always. And then just very recently, uh, kind of out of the blue, uh, Chris was like, you know, if you're going to be doing, uh, um, growing up Star Wars, cause I've pretty much always done, well, no, I take that back. I was going to say I pretty much always did Star Wars monthly Monday, but that's not true. Chris did that one for a long, long time and I was doing Star Trek and then we switched at one point. Um, cause I really wanted to score the synopses to the Marvel Star Wars books. So we switched, but that was ages ago. So I was doing Growing Up Star Wars. So he said, you know, if you want to do Growing Up Star Wars, and now that you've got so much going on with uh, with earning my ears and everything, he goes, I'll, I'll go ahead and take Comics Monthly Monday. And he kind of shocked me when he said that. I was like, okay. And But what it was is it turned out that he wanted to be able to play with scoring his synopses for Get Chris to Read a Goddamn Superhero Comic. <laughs> and I've enjoyed what he's doing with that so much that I actually don't miss it at all. He's still using my openers, so that's great, because that's one of my favorite openers to, uh, to any of our shows is the one for Comics Monthly Monday. So so long as he sticks with that opener, um, <laughs> he can have the editing chores on that one. I'm not bothered. Yeah, I find myself with the openers for that, for Star Trek, uh, I find myself like, because uh, I'm usually listening to it in the car as I'm driving to work, mm-hmm. and I find myself like doing the lines with it as I'm, as yeah. I'm listening to it. <laughs> well, the thing that's fun, and, and I haven't said anything to Chris, I don't know if he plans to do this or not, but the thing that I always found a lot of fun with Comics Monthly Monday was that's the one I continue to play with. So there was never really a definitive version because I just kept adding to it and adding to it. Because if you go back and listen to the earliest versions of that, 
it was there was really only like three or four sound bites in it. It was Spider Man at the beginning, and then it was Superman and Batman, the Joker laugh, and the Hulk. And I think that was it. And, and now then Captain now, America. Yeah, there's Captain America. There's the Bionic Man sound. There's Nick Fury. I think the Nick Fury Optimus line is the one that makes Prime. Yeah, to me uh, the all right, gentlemen, you're up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. I, I like where it's at now. I had to play around with it quite a bit to find you know the right lines and being able to take. And plus, I love uh, when Odin says about the hammer and everything too. So, mm-hmm. not to toot my own horn, but I like that one a lot. Uh, probably I'll tell you my, what. My, What's that? To, to toot your horn for you. <laughs> Growing up, Star Wars has become a must-listen for me. Oh, thank you, thank you very it, much. I, that's just a that's just a project of passion. We're having such a blast doing that show, and uh, I'm not sure yet when we're going to record the next one, but I'm really looking forward to it because now that I kind of got it out of my system with that that new Marvel Star Wars number one, I want to get back to what the show was really about, which is just a nostalgic celebration of classic Star Wars because. Uh, you know, it's funny we haven't been called out on it because usually when we say, hey, we're, next episode we're going to do this and then we don't do it, we get a flood of people going, hey, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Nobody called us out for not doing coloring books, which we said we were going to hey, do. Wait a minute. So. Yeah, I didn't catch it until now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're I'm I you know, the guys haven't mentioned it either, so I don't know if they forgot or what, but I definitely um, next episode, if at all possible, I plan to get back to the to the coloring books and, and do that. But it's funny because we've done that a couple of times lately because Scott and I talked about doing something on Earning My Ears that we didn't do either. And nobody – oh, I know what it was. uh, You know, one of the mandates on that show was kind of the thing that was supposed to be the shtick of the show was every episode we were going to do a Walt Disney World for the such and such geek segment. And I want to say like the last two shows, I don't think we've done that segment at all so we're going to try to get back to that in the next one well, which we're supposed to record tomorrow afternoon so yeah i've, I've just been listening you know for entertainment value mm-hmm. but if if i'm my, my feeling is if i uh if i do the disney trip this summer that i hope to do i'm gonna have to listen to them all over again for homework purposes for helping <laughs> to prep for the trip well, it's funny you say that because uh i was telling scott the other day um that i would really like to try to do a revised version of I think it, I I could be wrong but I think it was the first flat out like all Disney show that I did for Two True Freaks ages ago was the trip planning episode that I did I, I can't remember what it was called it was like Scott goes to Disney World Part One or something like that and uh, it was meant to be like the first of a series on like you want to come to Walt Disney World here's how you do it kind of thing and I only ever did the one. Um, but it remains like a really popular one in our in our back catalog. And it remains one of my favorite shows because I just had a blast doing it. It was one of the first things I ever edited all myself. And uh, and I was really proud of the way it came out. But it's now it's it's dated. I mean, it's going on like six years old at this point. And things change so fast here that, you know, you can you can research something and write something and, and get something out there. And by the time you publish it, it's already out of date because things just change so fast. So I was talking to him about that and was like, you know, as you know, late spring and early summer approaches, what do you think about the idea of doing like a one shot like trip planning episode? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So uh, we're, we we're both excited about that because, I mean, that that's the thing is between just those two shows, between growing up Star Wars and earning my ears, my podcast passion has been reignited because I hope it never came across in any of the shows that that I do. But for a time, I was getting to that kind of like, you know, I might be done with this point. 
Because people, you know, that don't do it, I don't think they appreciate just how much, not only the work that's involved, but the time that's involved mm -hmm. with it, you know? And how that I mean, affects the, the people in your household as well. It, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I was trying to find a, a way to say that without sounding like I'm just complaining, but it does. You know, I mean, one day you, you, you look up and you go, oh my God, I've been doing this for eight years and how much time have I spent with my kids? You know, that sort of thing. And, uh... Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I love it, but it is a serious um, commitment of time and and resources and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's that there's that balance to strike too. Yeah, and I would say I've I've hit my limit on how much I can do without it affecting my personal life. Mm -hmm. Between this, listen to the prophets, and then the occasional guest shot here and there. I think that's it. That's all I can handle because otherwise it will start to affect my free time. It'll affect what I'm doing. I have to start planning around it much more. Mm -hmm. and, and that's with a very limited schedule. I mean, you do more shows than I do by a significant amount. Well, that's what happened to me <laughs> was I was it was too much. And every time my schedule changed, it would slowly get, you know, everything was getting compressed into this amount of time. And I'm, I just got to the point where I'm like, you know, I've got real world stuff I've got to take care of. So the only way I'm going to do this is to go cold turkey. Well, and, and, and I think there is an advantage, and as somebody who never does it, you got to take what I say with a grain of salt, but I think there is an advantage to doing one show and doing it by yourself, because you can mm -hmm. kind of squeeze it into whatever nook and cranny you have free when you have, fr when you have it free and hopefully not affect your other time scale. Yes. Yeah. When you start well, dealing with other people, now you got to start worrying about your schedule in relation to theirs and trying to get it in, and especially, you know, I, I've really prided myself on this in making sure that a new episode goes up every week. And we're coming up, I think, on close to two years that we've had an episode every week. And I'm, I'm proud mm -hmm. of that for what it's worth. Right. No, it should be. It's, it's, an, it's an incredibly hard to get that out sometimes. And you were talking about doing the solo show. I, you know, while I was on that sabbatical, I was thinking about when was I happiest doing this? When was it just the most fun? And it was back when I was doing Superman Forever and just Superman Forever because I had a method, I had passion, and at this stage, you know, Bob Fisher's taken that over. So for me, I just decided to apply that sort of mentality to Daredevil. And it's just, you know, I'm going to have fun with this. I'm not going to stress as much. And I'm just going to work as far ahead as I can. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the day I stop having fun with this, I'm going to just let you know, you know, anybody else want to take over on Back to the Bins? Because I'm gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, right now I still have too much fun. That ain't happening anytime soon. And the funny thing is, Scott, I listened to Growing Up Star Wars on the plane back from Orlando. It's funny you bring that up. <laughs> I'm, I'm I was I was myself, planning okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was I actually want to take the opportunity to publicly publicly apologize and kind of explain that when I could, when I travel, my OCD kicks in. So I'm always checking the tickets, did I get this? What okay, what time are we leaving? And I kept thinking, okay, I got to message Scott. Got to message Scott. No, what about the tickets? <laughs> and so it comes to cuz we went we flew in on a Monday. So it comes to Sunday night, like, okay, if I do this now, it's a douche move. I didn't realize you had a season pass. But if I do this now, it's last minute, hey, I'm going to be here. And I'm like, okay, I, I will just let it go and maybe try to get in touch with them while I'm there just to throw it out. And then your wife got food poisoning. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so I'm like, uh. And then, and now I'm going to use it as, I'm going to, at one point, I'm going to come down for at least one day and, and just make it a point to come down and we can hit Marvel Advi Island of Adventure. There you go. There you go. See, I, I was I was fully prepared to to start this episode with uh, with a joke. Is 
what did J. David Weeder and Jeff Doak and the Irredeemable Shag and a couple other people, what do they all have in common? They come to Walt Disney World or Orlando and don't contact me. <laughs> well, another layer to that, though, I will throw this on the table, is this was my wife and I will have been married nine years in April. Mm-hmm. We've never taken a vacation together. We barely had a honeymoon because we both had jobs we had to go back to after we got married. So we went about 30 minutes away from where we live. So for mm-hmm. this, this was a not even a second honeymoon. It was a, the honeymoon, a delayed honeymoon. Right. So I, I did want to be careful not to neglect her because this was all for her. But man, Universal is amazing. We've 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 dreamed about going back since. Well, that's the thing I always tell people when when they come is that yes, I would like to get together and everything. However, I am always at least I hope I am anyway. Um, you know, probably Scott Rifen would be in a better position to answer this <laughs> question definitively or not, but. I always try my level best to be very respectful of the fact that, you know, it's easy for me to say, hey, let's hook up. I mean, I I live here. I work here. I can go anytime I want. You guys are coming. You know, you're you're, you're paying for your tickets. You're paying for your hotel. You know, for you, it's a vacation. It's a getaway, that sort of. And I try to be incredibly respectful. So, I mean, on the one hand, on 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 that human friendship level i was like ah but on you know on a realistic <laughs> level i'm like well you know no, i understand kind of thing because you know yeah i don't one of the things that i was really concerned about when i came down there is you know i was really excited okay i'm gonna get to finally get get together with scott and bill and and spend some time together but on the other hand i'm taking my kids away for a vacation right am i gonna i don't want to be with you guys just hang out the whole time. Time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> exactly <laughs> but but I, what's it I, I no, did I said, say. I, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> what I said was, "Oh God, am I going to have to be with these saddled with these assholes the entire time?" <laughs> no, but I mean, it worked. I thought we got we had really a good balance on it. We got to spend some time together. We got to hang out together. We had a really good time. But I never neglected the kids, so I thought it really worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, it was it was a great vacation. I, I I went on record afterwards saying I think it may be the best vacation I ever had. Aw. So it was really good. I mean, and you know what, I mean, part of it, taking you and Bill out of the equation, part of it is my kids have reached a point now of maturity where the time we spent at the parks, it was less me being the parent and them being the children and more just the three of us having fun together. Right. You know, the the only time the parenthood really came into play was when we bought something because it was always my wallet. Right. But other than that, you know, we, we really just had a great time together and it was, you know, it was, it was a kind of a new experience to do it that way and not just be showing them a good time right so you know it, it was really it really was I, like i said i think it may be the best vacation i've ever had in my life it was great i can't wait to come back yeah I'm, we're already planning on coming back and at that point i'll definitely definitely get in touch because we still need to ride the hulk together <laughs> which was I, I wish you'd been there to warn me that the fact that when you they buckle you into the hulk and that harness they don't mess around oh, they're yeah. gonna they're gonna yeah. get you in tight enough for i'm, I'm i had it comfortable and tight because I don't want to fall out of the thing. But they latched it down one more time. I'm like, I cannot breathe. See, That's I was, the way I was say, on the Harry Potter ride. See, I, I don't know. You know having not, not met you in real life, I, I don't know how big you are or you know your dimensions or anything. But that's the thing for me is that I'm a big guy. And so I get in that thing and I'm, you know, I'm like a, a centimeter away from literally like, you know, they're going to have to like compress me or something to get, you know. So it's like they get that thing buckled and it's like. 
I'm glad this is real fast and real short because otherwise I can't yeah. hold my breath that long. You know? Well, once you launch <laughs> off the Hulk, once you get out of that zero G role, the launch I could do without, but the rest of the Hulk is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that actually somehow loosens up or just, yeah, the speed distracts me. So <laughs> by the second time I was fine. But you know, the funny thing is the real standout ride, Spider-Man. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, we rode almost yeah. everything. We, I mean, we rode Escape from Gringotts, their newest attraction, and it was good, but Spider-Man still stands up so much better than the rest. Mm-hmm. Well, that time we, last year, I, I think we did Spider-Man four times that day. Yeah. It was it's great. It's just a great ride. That was the second ride we rode because we had early access because we stayed on site. So we went into the Diagon Alley area and rode the Escape, Escape from Gringotts, went across to, to the uh, Islands of Adventure then. And then made our way to the the Spider Man. We did that first, or once we got to Marvel, because the the original plan was I'm gonna we're gonna spend a whole day in Marvel, and then the next two days we'll go to the different sections of Harry Potter. But it ended up getting cut up a little bit. The funny thing is, is you know they they've had some some really big attractions that have come along since Spider Man. You know, and just off the top of my head, you've got uh you know the the original Harry Potter. You've mm-hmm. got Transformers, and now you have the Gringotts, you know, the, the Harry Potter sequel, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, for all the technical innovations and the new effects and everything else that they've incorporated into all three of those, they still feel to me like they're chasing Spider-Man. And I still yeah. think Spider-Man beats them all. It's yeah. still that like that's their, you know, premier attraction in so many ways is that Spider-Man attraction. Well, I, Spider-Man, I just... Spider-Man is their version of Star Tours. Yes, yeah, very much so. And they were really uh, it, forbidden. Was it Harry Potter: The Forbidden Journey? Forbidden Journey, yeah, I think yeah. That was yeah. that was touted so high, and yeah, it had great moments, but it felt herky jerky. It felt it didn't feel as immersive as Spider Man, mm-hmm. which is odd because it's a, again a newer attraction. It's touted as one of the best in the world. It's won the awards for best in the world from Spider Man, and I didn't see it. I just did not see it. Well, the thing with with the Spider-Man, for one, I think Spider-Man is, and maybe this is just me being a big old comic nerd, maybe I'm completely wrong, but Spider-Man to me feels much more accessible mm-hmm. than Harry Potter does. As a guy who is a self-professed, don't give a rat's ass about Harry Potter kind of guy, I'm impressed with the technical side of Harry Potter, but as a ride, I I just don't enjoy. I don't get it. It doesn't seem to me like it has much of a story. It seems like it's more of here's this and here's this and oh you remember this right? Whereas Spider Man tells a story, and the thing that impresses the hell out of me with Spider Man is that both Spider Man and Harry Potter whisk you all over the place and upside down and you know flipping and twirling and bouncing and falling and rising and all this stuff. Yet at the end of it, I get off Spider-Man. I'm like, damn, let's go back in line and do that again. Whereas I get off Harry Potter and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to hurl. You know, <laughs> and we and did. It's just, we, did. And it, we actually and did I, go back and do Spider-Man again. You know, and that Harry Potter one, every single time I've ridden it, has left me with a headache that's lingered for like two days. So there's something about the way it moves. It's not fluid to me, now, at least to me. That, are you talking about the Harry Potter ride that was there last year? Or the yeah, the, ori- the original. No, the original one. See, the, the new one, it's funny because everybody that I know that has ridden the new one goes, eh, it was all right, but it's not as good yeah. as the original. I wrote the I only new know one the and I was like, wow, that's... Been there. I, I'm sorry? I said I only know the original one because I haven't been there since. Yeah. I yeah. really enjoy it, I have to say. We went on it. And then when we got off, my daughter confessed that she was a little nervous and she had her eyes closed the whole ride. <laughs> so we went back online and went on it again. 
See, I actually know. like the second one better. Yeah. Only because... The second one has roller coaster elements. Yeah, it, it felt more roller coaster-like to me, but it, while it does have thrill ride aspects and the roller coaster aspect and at the same rate um it was just smoother and it seemed like it was telling more of a of a linear thing and it didn't seem as herky-jerky or i I don't know i just you know i just simply enjoyed it much better It, it didn't make me you know feel ill or give me a headache or anything like the other one does and the other one does every time i mean i've I've tried it several times with the intention of, okay, I know it's coming, so let me sit this way and let me let me try this again. And every time, it's it's the same thing. I get off it and my head just pounds and it's like, okay, there's something either going on with the ride or going on with me that <laughs> I just I can't handle this ride. And I kept thinking, well, maybe it's like a blood pressure thing or something. But I mean, I can ride the Hulk, you know. I mean, you would think if you can ride the Hulk, then Harry Potter shouldn't be anything. So it has something to do, I think, with the lateral movement of it or something. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's basically on an arm. So I think the movements, they're unnatural is what they yeah. are. They're, yeah. And yeah, the body's not prepared for that where the Hulk is more intuitive. You can right. see where you're going with that. Yeah. I'm going under a tunnel. Now, I don't know, I don't know if I'm unique on this because it is, looking back on it, a little bit antiquated. But I really wish they hadn't gotten rid of King Kong. I like that ride. Rumor has it Kong's coming back. Now, what form that's going to take, I don't know. But that's been an ongoing rumor for a long time, and it seems like it's gaining steam. So we might. Yeah, be I would have seeing... preferred they updated the ride they had instead of getting rid of it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, the Mummy ride is okay; it's not bad, but I thought Kong was better. I, you know, I respect the Mummy on a again, much like Harry Potter. I respect it on a technical level. But it doesn't really do anything for me, having not really been a fan of those movies or anything. And it's you know it's so strange to me that you can take rides and attractions at Universal that are relatively you know the Mummy movies are what are they even twenty years old yet? Yes, I don't the think. first Mummy came out in nineteen ninety nine. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, <laughs> coming up on twenty years then, and it feels ancient to me. Whereas you've got Disney attractions, some of which are based on movies that are, you know, 80 years old, you know, so it's it's just really weird that you can have timeless in one and wow, that feels really dated in another that's not even hit the 20 year mark yet. So that it's, that's really bizarre to me. Well, it also but speaks they, to the, the staying power of a lot of Disney movies, though. That's true. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm hoping that rumor is true that they're going to go back to Kong because the Kong that they had there. While by today's standards, it wouldn't be terribly technically sophisticated, you know, sophisticated because, you know, much like the Kong 76 movie, it was a giant mechanical ape at a time when you didn't have giant things being very fluid when they moved. So it was very it was kind of hokey, but it was still, it was a giant Kong, you know, it was still cool, yeah, but I'm that's, sure that, that was my take on it. You know, with today's technology, I'm sure that they could do it so much better. Plus, they more than likely they I would imagine they probably won't go with a lot of physical effects. They'll probably do it much like they're doing it with, say, uh, Spider-Man, Transformers, and Harry Potter, where a lot of it's going to be screens and and moving you as opposed to something moving at you. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, as far as you know, a, a physical effect, you know, you might get like at the end of it, a giant Kong hand or something that's an, an actual practical effect. But a lot of it will probably end up being screens, which if they do it well, 
that works too. I mean, because there's not very many practical props in Transformers. Yeah, I feel like I'm completely in that world when I ride that ride. I mean, you really feel like you're there with the, the Autobots and the Decepticons battling it out and, and you're right in the battle. And that's pretty impressive when you really stop to think that, you know, really, this is just a bunch of 3D screens, but it's the way it's presented to you. Well, think about I, the know, scene in Spider-Man Ride where, uh, you know, where, where Ock lifts up the car and then throws it and... Mm-hmm. Spider-Man has to get in the webs. Just picture something like that with Kong picking up the car and then climbing up the Empire State oh. Building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tell me that wouldn't be awesome. Could, I think that would be. I think that would be great. My my biggest hope, if Kong really does come back, is I will. You know, I, I can totally forego having a real mechanical Kong or even a mechanical hand or anything physical. But the one thing I want them to bring back that they had in the original Kong was that sense of when you were going through the queue and and boarding the ride vehicle, they had so authentically recreated the feel of being on real city streets while you were in the show building. I mean, much more that, I mean, Disney has done that very well with like the streets of America over in Hollywood studios. And there's that scene on the great movie ride where you ride through the, the gritty underworld and you've got uh, like James Cagney doing, you know, the gangster movie scene and all that. It's very well done, but it's just short little scenes. This was like, it felt anyway, I don't know how big it really was, but it felt like blocks, like an entire blocks of New York city that were like post Kong attack, you know? So it was, you know, it was a lot of debris and clutter and it just felt so real and i mean totally immersive and i'd love to see that recreated again that feeling that i i know i'm in a show building i know this is just a theme park ride but man i feel like i'm really here and that to me that's that that level that you know they they can achieve but they need to keep striving for because uh I, you know, I know you haven't been to the new Harry Potter section, but that's the thing with that new Harry Potter section is, wow. I mean, you walk in there and you feel like, holy cow, <laughs> I am really in another. I'm not in a theme park anymore. I really am in this place. And that's even, even I want to see the old Harry Potter area. They had a little bit of that with the, you know, the butter beer and the train and, right. and different things going on. I mean, they, they I thought again, I haven't seen the new stuff, but I thought the old stuff they did fairly well. The new area area is that times ten. The new yeah. area you are completely immersed. Yeah, yeah, they and did that's it why well. I need to get back. Yeah, they did it well with the original. This new one is yeah, like David's. Yeah, it's times ten. It, it really is, and that's why I'm both really excited for and a little bit nervous about whatever's coming for Star Wars with Disney because man, they need to they need to hit it at at least that level or they're going to kind of feel like an also-ran. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping that they're going to look at that and go, eh, we can do better than that. Well, first Because of all, if they do, it's going to be awesome. First of all, they're Disney. They're never going to be an also-ran in this race. Second of all, I can't imagine that they're not going to hit it out of the park when they do it. I really, well, I can't, I just can't see that. I mean, look how, how awesome Star Tours is. Mm-hmm. How, you know, they, they know what they're doing. I mean, it's that simple. I'm hoping they have the same interactivity because it, I, and I don't know if they had this when you were there, Paul, but you can buy wands and go up to specific windows in both areas and wave it in a specific fashion and something will happen. And I'm hoping they do something with the force on that level Ooh, by a lightsaber. Cool and, and yeah, I'm hoping there's that level of interactivity. Yeah. Well, they'll certainly make an effort to put that level of interactivity if you, especially if you have to buy something in order to do it. 
mm-hmm. like a wand. Oh yeah. So you know, if they yeah. get, if that interactivity gets them more money, <laughs> I'm sure they'll go out of their way to create it. Well, Universal's the wands. They're they're not as bad as I had expected, but I think my wife and I both got a wand each, and it was just under a hundred dollars. My my son has a wand, and my daughter has a time turner. Yep. Hmm. But I was actually pleasantly surprised at the pricing within the park. The food for the portions that you get, the food was pretty adequately priced. But where they hook you, <laughs> it's the butter beer. Oh, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, you know, we were getting a little cheap, so we bought one, and the three of us shared it. We we went all in. Once you start, you can't back out. Like my wife would turn, and I would start drinking hers as well. <laughs> <laughs> now, did did you just hit Universal and Islands of Adventure, or did you hit Disney as well? We did not hit Disney because we're but we are Harry Potter fans. So our main thing was we're going to Harry Potter and also Marvel. Now, did you do so, uh, Jurassic Park as well? No, too cold. We went through the area, but we didn't ride the river. Um, what is it, the river river ride? Yeah. Which is basically a log flume with a dinosaur chasing you. Yeah. But it was, I watched I mean, it a video cool. of it. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I can do with that. But we didn't really ride the water rides because it's, it's early December. So, What's really funny about that is that I think Dinosaur at Disney's Animal Kingdom does it better up until the final dinosaur. Because they both, they're, they're so similar to each other anyway. But they both have the same thing as the final show scene is a dinosaur coming at you like it's intent to eat you. And the one in Disney is the Carnotaur from the dinosaur movie. And the one at Jurassic, you know, at Universal Jurassic Park is uh, the T-Rex. And I think the T-Rex just I think it looks better. I think it moves better. And I think it's frankly, I just think it's damn scarier. But it comes right at you as you're actually doing that final drop on the on the flume. And it, that that's the one portion of that that works actually a little bit better for me. I like that. Yeah, I didn't well, do the funny, dinosaur ride, but my, my daughter did it this last weekend when she was down there. And she said it was awesome. Yeah, I like that one a lot. What's funny is uh, because it has that giant log flume, you know, log flume style drop at the end. That's the reason my wife won't ride it though. I can't get her to go on it with me. <laughs> Otherwise she loves that ride, but she doesn't like drops, So she won't ride it because of that big drop. And you, it, depending on where you sit, you do get soaked on that. So ride. no splash mountain for Missy, huh? <laughs> no, she will not ride splash mountain. Don't feel bad. Spielberg got off before that point too. <laughs> yeah, we had done the, uh, Dudley do right. Ripsaw falls, <sighs> which is probably the best, fall on a log flume i've ever had yep and we had done that ride when my daughter was like five years old and she was just tall enough to be on it 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 terrified me not because i was scared to be on the ride it terrified me because i was scared because she was on the ride Mm -hmm. picturing her flying out of the car of the flume yeah Yeah, and and when we had done that i think scott i think you and i had talked about this when we had done it back then which is nine years ago now uh they didn't have seat belts or anything on the ride it was it was an inverted bench Yep. That you would sit, you know, with your your knees on either side of the bench and then you'd sit, you know, four deep. Mm-hmm. So I had her sit in front of me and then I just kind of locked my knees around her body to keep make sure that she couldn't move. Mm-hmm. But it was terrifying. Then when we went on it last year, they had changed it. They had individual seats with uh, harnesses. Yep. So I'm I'm wondering if they just decided to be safe or if they had an incident. I think it's uh it's a little of both is my understanding. But uh, it's funny because I had the same exact type of thing happen to me because the first time we went there, Logan was just a little shaver and we rode it and he re- he sat in front of me and uh, going down that final drop, you have that that moment of weightless, uh, weightlessness at one point in your drop 
And I swear I felt like he was coming out of the car. And I grabbed a hold of him and like, you know, like basically held him down in his seat because I was afraid he was just going to fly right out. It scared the life out of me. But it was that sense of, you know, that that momentary zing of, oh, my God, we're going to fall right out. That kept me riding it over and over again. Because <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it just, it, it's, it was There's great. nothing like imminent death to keep you riding yeah. right. But uh, no, I love. I absolutely love that attraction. That is one of my absolute favorites at uh, at Universal. I mean, they they outdid every other Flume ride I've I've ever seen or been on with that one. Now, there's others that may be better themed, uh, as far as you know the you know the the animatronics and things going on. You know, like Splash Mountain. But uh, but overall, just the the story it tells and the comedy beats in it because it it really does capture that that feel of the uh the jay ward dudley do right shorts because i'm a huge fan of those i you know i grew up with that stuff so i i really like dudley do right and i i love they got all the original or at least they sound like the original voice actors back and it just it has that same feel of an episode mm-hmm. but that combined with that drop at the end you know, it's just it's it's great. It it's the best of both worlds. I really like that one a lot. Which has me thinking your avatar is Hitler on uh, on a log. <laughs> <laughs> Hitler loves the Dudley Do Right. Oh, do not splash me too much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody, what's up? Dr. Bill in the house.